With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. All right, game's up. It's over. You're not going anywhere. It's all right. Oprah's in danger. Not while I'm here. I have to get into that studio, even if it means going through you. Man, you come straight out of a comic strip. Superheroes tend to have a certain look, and it's usually the look of a tall, strapping white guy. Marvel Comics has been changing it up. First, there was Black Panther. And next month, the newest occupant of the Iron Man suit will be a 15-year-old black girl named Riri Williams. She's a science phenom who engineers the suit in her dorm room at MIT. Her superhero name is Ironheart, and she's on one of Marvel's covers next month. Alongside her on that cover is Arielle Johnson. She's broken some ground herself as one of the few black women to own a comic book store, and she joins us now on the line. Arielle, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. This is so exciting, I imagine. How did this whole thing come about? Marvel, you know, reaches out occasionally to stores to ask if they want to do a store variants. What that means, it's the same story inside the book, but it has an alternate cover. And a store exclusive variant means the only place to purchase that cover is at the store that it belongs to. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not going to be a book that can be picked up anywhere. You have to uh, come to Amalgam to get it. (laughs) You're a comic store, yeah. Yeah, we're so on the cover. We're just in the shop, like, eating and drinking and and chatting. And it was beyond anything (laughs) that I was thinking when I saw the initial sketch. I was really blown away. For people who are just hearing about Riri for the first time, tell us about her. Why is she significant? What's her backstory? She's a science phenom, um, a 15-year-old that has been admitted into MIT. And, you know, she's significant in the Marvel Universe because they are 
actively, you know, diversifying their line of characters. And, you know, there are people who, of course, will say, you know, Iron Man will always be Tony Stark. But what I like about her character is she is donning the suit, but she is not Iron Man. She is Ironheart. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think it's it's cool that she is a young black girl. You know, she has, you know, brown skin, natural hair. And, you know, she's a science nerd. I just think it'll have such a positive kind of effect just on, you know, the geek community, the black girl community, you know, black girl geek community, (laughs) you know, just again, like I said, opening like the doors of your mind to what you can achieve, you know, if you want to. When I think of comic books, I think of a world that is largely male and largely white. Are you still as a black woman in this space? Are you still the exception to the rule? There are probably not as many of us are the, as there are young white males or even old white males. I mean, comics yeah. have been around for a while, so a lot of, like, hardcore comic book people are older. But, you know, we are out here. And just even with my research, the research that I did in preparation to open the shop, the assumption is that it's probably 75% male and then 25% Female, but actually it's about 50 50. Is it? Um, as far as like who is buying comic books, it's about a 50 50 split. So women are buying them and women are reading them and they have been. And then as far as like, you know, the black geek community and the black girl nerd community kind of thing, it's we are out here, I guess, in lesser numbers, but still significant numbers. Arielle Johnson, she owns Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in Philadelphia. We've been talking about the new Marvel comic hero, heroine, Riri Williams. Hey, Arielle, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on the show. Now keep in mind that I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. Don't know if you've ever heard of a New York-based artist named Kahinde Wiley. An exhibit of his just opened recently in Paris. Ten large portraits in stained glass and oil on canvas. Each looks like a scene you'd expect from a religious Renaissance painting, but at the center of every piece, there's a contemporary person of color. Wiley is known for this sort of reinterpretation of traditional portraits. I describe it as an intervention. I think that, by and large, most of the work that we see in the great museums throughout the world are populated with people who don't happen to look like me. As a child, I grew up studying and worshipping those great works of Western European painting. But I also wanted to fulfill the goal of of feeling a certain personal uh, presence in that work. And I think that's what you have. Intervention is a really interesting word to use to describe what you do. Uh, It it kind of implies that um, something ain't going right and you need to get in and kind of correct it. Well, it's true. I mean, there there is much to be said about being able to have a bully pulpit. Artists have a, a certain stand, a crate that we can stand on and say that this is not quite up to the occasion. We want things to change somehow. I'm not changing the world. Let's face it. I'm making paintings. But in the end, what I'm pointing to are elements of the life, the world that we all know, the world that we all know to be beautiful, graceful, special in their own ways. Uh that we need to see in, in, in museums. At its best, what art does is it points to who we as human beings and what we as human beings value. And if black lives matter, they deserve to be in paintings. So the, the, the whole idea of kind of using the traditional religious scene with a modern person of color, that's really interesting. You grew up in the late 80s in South Central L.A., right? That's right. 
Did did you grow up in a religious home? I mean, because there is a lot of Christian iconography in your work. I did grow up in a religious home. I'm not particularly religious myself, and I don't think it requires a religious outlook in order to appreciate the work. What I do want to point to in my work is the fidelity and the the magic with which all of these artists created such amazing depictions of glory in the world. And sure, do we do we have to use that to talk about a divinity? Uh, maybe not so much these days. But we can use it to talk about those things that we choose to value, uh, that, that we choose to embrace. And the question is, what is that? So Paris, where you've got your exhibit currently, and where there are also plenty of museums where you can see kind of like these medieval and Renaissance paintings that you kind of base some of your own work on, what was the reaction to your portraits when you had the opening? It's really profound. I mean, you have to know that most of the images that I was dealing with in Paris were of young black men between the ages of 18 and 35, a very sort of sweet spot demographic, holding young, dead black babies in their arms, shot through the language of stained glass. How do we respond to that in America? Very differently than Paris. Paris has... Uh, a new sense of national trauma with regards to its boundaries, its sense of self. America has a new sense of how we're going to be dealing with policing black bodies in the, in, in the, the age of the cell phone. How does a painting get viewed at any given point? Well, Paris was different than America, and it, it must be. Um, it, it was enjoyable beyond belief to be able to see the multiplicity of views that, that can be applied to one image. It, it, was there one specific reaction? You said, you know, it was kind of a profound moment, this, this opening. I never had so many museum guards walk up to me like they did in Paris, where they said, oh, my God, I've never seen this many black bodies in a public space. And those museum guards, were they black themselves? Were they happily surprised to see so many people of color there? Or kind of were they white and just couldn't believe what was going on? Well, what's interesting is that the museum guards who came up to me in Paris were both black, white, North African, really the full cloth of France. And they said to me, I can't believe this many black bodies are in this space. The resplendent light coming out of that stained glass is not about nationhood. It's not about race. It's about being powerful in the world, glowing literally. And if art can be at the service of anything, it's about letting us see a state of grace for those people who rarely get to be able to see in that way. And you're also doing a special event here in the U.S. with the French Embassy. What is, the, what is your connection to France? Well, I have a studio in uh, French West Africa, well, former French West Africa in Senegal. Mm. Uh, I also uh, speak a bit of French. Uh, I guess you could say I'm a, a bit of a Francophile. Uh, over the years, learning uh, through French painting has been a, a huge source of inspiration. Is it uh, kind of also a, a Dexter Gordon, Langston Hughes thing that, you know, they felt incredibly embraced and appreciated in Paris in, in ways that they never did here in the U.S.? It's a Dexter Gordon, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, <laughs> Josephine Becker. It goes on and on and on. The love affair between black America and France is profound. However, I think that the, the one that exists today is much more uh, depth and much more lived in uh, real time. One of our biggest exports as Americans is our cultural output. Hip-hop has been beamed into everyone's ears, whether it be in France or in Sri Lanka. 
And what young people do all over the world is figure out how they respond to this new call to arms, this new call for personal expression, political freedom. Uh, what we as African-Americans have given as a gift to the world is the ability to use improvisational style, the, the aesthetics of nomads shot out into the world. And now we've created a national and global sense of transiency, this, this ability to sort of move uh, uh, ideas, move thoughts, move uh, uh, aesthetic regimes into uh, the places that we want them to be. Without getting too far into it, France is a very special place because they have a history of this. The history of embracing uh, black and brown voices uh, is one that should not be lost in this new turn towards the right. We have a very different France happening uh, right now, and I, I fear that we're going to see some, some different cultural temperatures on the ground. You mean in terms of tolerance and intolerance right now in France? Precisely. I think that it's obviously something that we see here in America. We see it in the Brexit. Uh, we also see it in France. And all of those black and brown bodies that are in uh, places called the jungle, that are in places that are sites of refuge, have to be remembered as sites that were once places of refuge for Eastern Europeans, Jews, uh, homosexuals. Europe has been a place of refuge. Why should it stop with black and brown bodies? Painter and visual artist Kehinde Wiley, great to meet you. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Wiley's works are beautiful, and they make you do a double take. You can see some of them at PRI.org. I highly recommend it. She's a biracial girl. She's biracial. She's a biracial girl. She's a biracial girl. She's the one who has changed my world. Tonight, a dairy mother is speaking out after she was targeted with racial vandalism several times in recent weeks. She says the threatening messages and damage are disturbing because she has a biracial son. Tonight, she shows our Jean Mackin exactly what happened and explains why she wants to share her story to show her son she will not be scared. The family has lived here on Scobie Pond Road in Derry for five years and never had a problem until waking up the morning of October 21st. Yeah, and it was on the, it was, it was all down, all down here. Jackie Stimson shows us where she found the racial slur etched into her car that morning. It said the N-word, lover. Nigger lover. She took this snapshot before having the hate-filled message removed. We are blurring out the racial slur and blurring out the same word written onto this sign, then put in her driveway three days later. And that basically told me to go home but a racial slur. Um, my son is black, and it, it's racist. Jackie didn't want to tell her seven-year-old son what was happening at their home, but she had to try to explain it when they discovered more damage this morning. They egged my car, they threw watermelon on my car, and chicken, fried chicken. So again, it's racist. She tried to clean up again, but pieces of chicken still litter the lawn. Police are asking the public to help solve these crimes, which could be elevated from criminal mischief charges. Because of the comments that have been made in some of these incidents, uh, a racially motivated crime. For now, Jackie has reinforced her home with security and visiting family members. 
and reassured her son. Well, he's a beautiful little boy, and he doesn't understand why all this is happening. He needs to know that he's done nothing wrong and that he should be proud of who he is. And We're not leaving. We're not going to change anything that we do, um, and I'm proud of him. And Jackie says she has two priorities. She wants the person caught, and she wants her son to feel safe. In Derry, Jean Mackin, WMUR News 9. She's biracial. She's a biracial girl. She's biracial. She's a biracial girl. A major Hollywood film shot here in Virginia and getting a lot of Oscar buzz will open the Virginia Film Festival tomorrow night in Charlottesville before opening nationwide on Friday. The movie Loving is about an interracial marriage in the court case that struck down Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. But now, one of the loving grandchildren tells me a key element of this film is wrong. Last year, around this time, parts of Shaco Bottom were transformed into a giant soundstage for a major motion picture about a landmark Supreme Court case. But really, the plot was more simple than that. It's a love story. I now pronounce you husband and wife. In 1958, Richard Loving, a white man, married Mildred Jeter, a woman of color, a violation of Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. The Supreme Court ruling on Loving v. Virginia invalidated laws prohibiting interracial marriage all across the country, a move that was not popular at the time. When the Loving case was decided, a significant majority of Americans did not agree with interracial marriage. And the court went ahead anyway and said, these people have a fundamental right to be married. My grandma raised me, so I already know the situation. This is Mark Loving. He was raised by his grandma, Mildred Loving, the central character in the movie. And while they do portray her as a woman of color, if you think that color is black, Mark says you'd be wrong. Here are the Loving's children. This picture taken in the mid-60s, around the time of the court case. That little white girl on the left, that's Mark's mother. And while he does admit he likes the overall theme of the movie, he takes offense that the film portrays his grandmother as African-American when there's no evidence that she was. I know during those times, there was only two colors, white and black, but she was Native American. I mean, both of our parents were Native American. Mark says his grandmother identified as Rappahannock Indian. If you doubt him, look at Richard and Mildred's marriage license that I uncovered on file at the Smithsonian. It clearly reads, Richard Perry Loving, white. Mildred Dolores Jeter, Indian. Mark says if his grandmother was alive today, she would cringe at all the attention the family is getting, and she'd be insulted that she was racially profiled as someone she wasn't. She wasn't trying to be no hero. She wasn't trying to be no civil rights, you know, activist. Or, you know, she just wanted to come back home to Central Point, Virginia. Of course, black or Native American, it was still an interracial marriage, which, of course, is the premise of that Supreme Court ruling in Loving v. Virginia. So as far as history is concerned, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. As your body grows In Madison Heights, a candidate for the local school board is raising eyebrows after he posted a series of what many are calling racist and disturbing tweets online. 
Fox News' Camila Miri with reaction. Take a look at this Facebook post. The man who posted it, Wayne Reef, is running for school board in Madison Heights. The caption reads, as you can see, all boys have their masks on. But the problem is, the African-American boys aren't wearing any masks. We've blurred their faces to protect their identities. Man, that's, that's really racist. It's like, he shouldn't be doing that. I'm just kind of concerned, like, who are the boys, like, and where are their parents? A source tells Fox 2 that a few years ago, Reef was reported to Child Protective Services because minors were drinking alcohol in his home. All the Madison High School students we talked to know of Reef and were surprised when we showed them Reef's Facebook page. I didn't suspect that from him. He was a nice dude. Another post, this one from Halloween, says, The one night of the year I wish I was on the sex offender list. We went to two different addresses linked to Reef, but no one came to either door. Another Facebook post shows two African-American boys sitting in a bathtub eating watermelon. A source says these children are not related to him. You're trying to show that you're going to take good care of kids. That's really not something you be, should be showing. It's a bad example, you know, to show people. A school board official says the posts are alarming, but with the election less than a week away, he says it's too late to remove Reef from the ballot. In Madison Heights, Camila Mary, Fox 2 News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Many organizations are still working to make a difference in Ferguson and North St. Louis County two years after unrest erupted in the area. That includes several foundations and other nonprofits that made promises of supporting job creation and education in the area. St. Louis Public Radio's Wayne Pratt reports. At the corner of West Fullerton Avenue and North Winds Estates Drive here in Ferguson, there is a cleared-out property that is undergoing a transformation. It was the site of a quick trip. It was burned out two years ago during the protests. It will soon become what many hope will be a sign of potential in the area, as I walk closer to the property, I can see bulldozers sitting idly by as crews prepare for another day's work on the Urban League's Community Empowerment Center, which should be open in March. It will be home to groups like the Salvation Army, University of Missouri Extension, and the Urban League's Save Our Sons program. We train them in the soft skills, helping them to understand the economic pipeline back into the workforce. Jamie Dennis is with Save Our Sons and to uh, enlighten them on the unspoken nuances of workplace behavior and etiquette. The program launched in January 2015 with the goal of training 500 men in North St. Louis County. It has trained about 250 and expanded into the city of St. Louis. The initiative has also received support from major employers in the area, including Centene. Senior Vice President of Business Operations Ed Gallegos wants to maintain that partnership and help those in the program sharpen their so-called soft skills. How do you do resume writing? How do you do interviewing skills? These, you know, these kids have never gone through interviewing skills, so those are the things that they may not get uh, even through, through going through, through colleges. Uh, so writing a good resume, even if you are a high school senior, there's a lot of activities they've done that really could sell them as, as, as potential applicants for jobs. Centene was one of the first major employers to make a commitment to North County following the events of 2014. 
It opened a $25 million office building in Ferguson this past April with roughly 115 full-time workers. The company says about 90 percent are North County residents and officials are working toward the goal of employing 250 at the facility. Reaching the goals set out a couple of years ago goes beyond corporate reputation for Monsanto Fund President Al Mitchell, who has been with the company for more than three decades. I actually spent some time growing up during high school in that neighborhood, actually right behind Canfield Green is where me and my family lived for a little bit. Mitchell is also Monsanto's vice president of community relations. He says the company's commitments involve education, which sets a foundation to help prepare young people for the future workforce. He says Monsanto, like others, is tracking its commitments very closely to make sure they have the intended effect. Most of these programs were two-year programs and we ask that they report every six months on the progress. That's one way. The other way is we go visit. And so I have a U.S. program director here, and between her and I, we go out and actually see how the money's being used. It has been tough to find an independent group that is monitoring all of the commitments made to Ferguson and North County over the past couple of years. St. Louis Youth Advocates put out a report in the summer of 2015 Organizers now tell St. Louis Public Radio they are hoping to issue another report next year. At Wellspring Church in Ferguson, Senior Minister Willis Johnson says he does not directly question the motives of some of the groups that have made promises, but moving forward, he wants to make sure all are on the same page. If it is simply about keeping your business solvent, if it's simply about branding your nonprofit and holding your your share and your sense of, of territorial equity, um, then... That's not helpful to us. Johnson, who is also director of the church's Center for Social Empowerment, says he understands change takes time. But he adds that luxury might not exist for much longer. If I'm a parent, I don't have two years of grade school to, to, to entrust or wait for the change. If I'm, if I'm a business owner, uh, I don't have two years to wait to see if the population growth does what it does and if I'm going to be able to sustain my business. The church and its Center for Empowerment share a key goal with foundations and businesses who are trying to help, preparing people in Ferguson and surrounding communities for the workforce. Those efforts are having an impact on Save Our Sons alum James Fuller. Even though he is a senior at Webster University, Fuller is convinced the program hammers home the importance of responsibility. And then, you know, the politics of a workplace is another huge thing, just learning how to work and function in workplaces. Fuller has put some of those skills to work in his studies, retail job, and a failed bid to become an alderman in Northwoods. He considers himself an example of how Save Our Sons is providing youth in North County with the chance to improve their lives. At the end of the day, if I feel as though there's an opportunity for me to continue to grow and get better at making money, providing for my family, whatever aspect of life it is that I'm really focused on, then I'm not really going to spend as much time out putting myself in the crosshairs of some something that's negative, you know, and it could potentially end my life. The Urban League's most recent annual report indicates 97 percent of those who enter the program do not have a job, but just about all of them find full or part-time work after graduation. Those numbers suggest the Save Our Sons initiative could be achieving many of the education and job creation targets set by several organizations over the past two years. For St. Louis Public Radio, I'm Wayne Pratt. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever.
just like us, niggas. Good evening, I'm Clarice Tinsley. A Dallas County election judge was removed from his position after a racist post was discovered on his Facebook page. 43-year-old Randy Smith worked as a Democratic election judge for nearly 20 years. He supervised voting at a polling place on election day. Today, he was confronted by the county commissioners about the comments he made July 2015 that have since been removed. Deanne Anglin is first on Fox 4 News. Well, the code of conduct for Dallas County's election uh, judges includes a list of uh, standards, including moral and ethical obligations. The one highlighted here applies in this case to treat others with respect. Dallas County elections judge Randy Smith stepped forward to face off with county commissioners over racially charged comments he posted on Facebook in 2015. Well, what did you say? So just be direct so the record will be clear. I don't even remember. I'm, I love it, honestly. So. <laughs> okay, that's uh, You're joking, right? I'm serious. I don't remember everything, honestly. One of the posts, why do people post so much crap on racial slur when three years ago I was stabbed and almost lost my life because of one. I know there are some good blacks, no offense to them. The county commission allowed Smith five minutes to address the matter. He did not deny pinning the post. I was wrong, but I have deleted the account and I am aware now of what, what I did wrong, so I'm asking for some lenience or like a suspension. The commission voted to remove Smith from his duties. Meantime, elections administrator Tony Pippins Poole explains an elections judge is appointed by the political party and the commission approves or rejects that appointment. She says their role is to oversee all aspects of a specific polling place and a moral responsibility of the elections judge requires them to treat others with respect. We let them know this is what is expected of them. These are the calls that you can be removed from. So we give that to every judge at the beginning of the, their terms. So they are quite aware of what the uh, commissioner's court uh, really expects of the judges in Dallas County. The Dallas County Democratic Party, which appointed Smith, issued a statement today regarding the matter. It says, Randy Smith is not someone we want representing our party. Now, according to records, Smith ran precinct 4070 at Peeler Elementary School. Pippins Pool says that the person who was the alternate for that precinct or polling place would typically take over. She was not aware right away of who that person is. So, latest live here in Dallas. Back to you. Ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, when we first heard on the television that a police officer had gunned down an unarmed African-American in North Charleston by the name of Walter Scott. There were some who said, wow. The national story has come home to South Carolina. But there were many who said there is no way that a police officer would ever shoot somebody in the back six, seven, eight times. But like Thomas, when we were able to see the video and we were able to see the gunshots and when we saw him 
fall to the ground. And when we saw the police officer come and handcuff him on the ground without even trying to resuscitate him, without even seeing if he was really alive, without calling an ambulance, without calling for help, and to see him die face down in the ground as if he were gunned down like game. I believe we all were like Thomas and said, I believe. What if Mr. Santiago was not there to record what happened? I'm sure that many of us would still say, like Thomas, we don't believe. We don't Following the murder trial for former police officer Michael Slager, a jury has been seated from 188 potential jurors we started with on Monday. There's a science to jury selection for both the prosecutors and the defense. The jury seated for Slager's murder trial, six white men, five white women, and one black man with six alternates. After that decision this afternoon, after the jury was finalized, I spoke with Mark Calzaretta, who's a jury consultant. Attorneys hire experts like Mark when it comes to selecting the jury and the science behind the jury and trial. Take a listen. Mark, um, give me your professional view of this jury. Uh, you know that it's predominantly a white, middle-aged jury. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's what it appears to be um, at this point. Um, and it seems, you know, as, you know, the defense had, had struck a number of um, minority um, possible jurors, um, and it seems like that that was their strategy. I mean, so... You know, if you're coming from their perspective, that seems like that's their strategy at this point, and that was their strategy during the jury selection itself. Um, and on the prosecution side, I mean, you have a, a balanced jury as far as uh, men and women, pretty much, but it certainly is is light on um, minorities. And that is a concern, obviously, for especially for the black community here. Is there any recourse for Walter Scott's family? Um, you know, I know that I know that the uh, prosecution had a Batson challenge. At least they at least they they put forth a Batson challenge, and then they they you know they they backed off of that. Um, so as far as any recourse at this point, unless if they had some sort of mistrial or something like that, I, I you know I don't see them once they impanel this jury. That is the jury. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very difficult um, when you have bats and challenges. It can be very difficult, um, especially because you can come up with many reasons on why you can move a juror outside of just the obvious, which is what people would look at, um, you know, that, that it's a minority, for example. Um, and that's what the bats and challenge is about, that you're just not simply allowed to move people based upon race, for example. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us your professional assessment. We hope to hear more from you uh, perhaps later in the trial. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. And for more on how experts help legal teams pick these juries, head to live5news.com. Look for my investigation called The Jury Whispers. developments tonight in the case of a man accused of setting fire to the home of a North Tonawanda firefighter. Our Claudine Ewing is live outside the FBI headquarters in downtown Buffalo with tonight's new information. Claudine? Good evening. The FBI is still looking into who sent 
this letter, it's racist, and it was sent to an African-American firefighter in the city of North Tonawanda earlier this year. Meanwhile, the man who was charged with arson, well, he may be looking at trying to get a plea deal in Niagara County. His name is Matthew Gerardo, and he is free on bail. But he could face some serious time in prison if he's convicted at trial. Two on your side learned from the firefighter who was the target of the crime that the Niagara County District Attorney's Office is working on offering a plea deal to Gerardo. Ken Walker tells me that he's okay if there's a plea. I called and left messages for the prosecutor, and I'm awaiting a response. Remember, the letter contained the N-word and threatened Walker to resign. A couple days later, his home was set on fire. Again, the FBI is saying very little, if anything, about this case. That's standard operating procedure, really, for the FBI. They don't comment on many cases until it's really wrapped up. It appears that they need more information on this case to move forward. Reporting live from downtown Buffalo, outside of the FBI headquarters, Claudine Ewing, Channel 2 News. I'm quite sure that uh, my uh, parents did identify the body, but all I heard that my sister Junie had identified the body because it had somewhat of an effect left upon her. It was had a, had a really kind of a nervous, like you know, it it really affected her. It was just a devastating uh, experience, and uh, I uh, experienced a lot of panic attacks too. Uh, once upon a time, I was real afraid of being on the inside, outside as well as the inside. Uh, of what? Of anywhere. Because the bombing took, it happened in a church where you you normally would feel safe or you think you were safe, you know. And uh, of all places, you know, a church. A church. Following a string of similar attacks last year, uh, another historically black uh, church in Mississippi was set on fire. That's the Hopewell Missionary Baptist Church. It was early today, and in addition to being set on fire, it also had Vote Trump spray-painted on it in big letters. So there oh, it could be a Democrat. It could be a liberal. You don't know. Could be you a don't liberal. know. Could be Black Lives Matter. Uh, perhaps not. So you see there the fire damage. You also see the spray paint. I think we have a close-up as well in case uh, maybe you don't have your contacts in. Yes, vote Trump. A very clear political message there. The main sanctuary of the church sustained heavy fire and smoke damage, as did the pastor's study and kitchen. There is definitely something particularly perverse about the sanctuary of a church being most damaged during this uh, apparently politically motivated uh, terrorist attack on a historically black church, a church that's been operating for 111 years, according to my research. Uh, there were no reports of injuries, thankfully, and no one had been in the building since about 1 p.m. Tuesday. Uh, the, the mayor of Greenville, where the church uh, was burned, uh, a city that is apparently 78% African-American, uh, more so than the surrounding area, said this, this is being investigated as a hate crime. This is a direct assault on people's right to freely worship. We're going to investigate the matter with all deliberate speed and will not rest until the perpetrator is arrested and prosecuted. And the police chief in Greenville said this, it tries to push your beliefs on someone else, referring to the spray paint. And this is a church, a predominantly black church, and no one has a right to try and pressure someone into the way they want to decide to vote in this election. Some of the members of the congregation were, uh, people reached out to them, reporters, that said uh, not only were they worried for the future of the church, which it's not sure at this point can actually be repaired, it might have to be replaced, 
Um, they also said that they feel that this is also uh, personal terrorism against them, uh, an attempt to intimidate them personally as African Americans in that area. Okay. If you're not aware of the history of terrorism in this country, uh, racists were, have been terrorizing black people in this country for a long time. And I'm not just talking about slavery. I'm talking about uh, Birmingham used to have a nickname during the civil rights era. It was called Bombingham because of how many times it was uh, black homes and churches would be firebombed. And now there's a famous story of the four uh, poor little children who died in a church once. But bombing black churches is an old racist terrorist tradition here in America. Mm -hmm. And so did you know that after the shootings in South Carolina where a white supremacist walked in and shot and killed nine African Americans, seven other black churches were burned down uh, after that. I read up to 11. So now, how come that didn't get nonstop coverage? Now imagine... We covered it. Yes. Now imagine... Now imagine if you had a Muslim who went in and murdered white Christians in, in some place like South Carolina and said, I did, and the guy had a manifesto, the, guy, the, the shooter in South Carolina that killed all those African Americans had a manifesto, did it for political and ideological reasons, and he wanted to start a race war. It partly uh, inspired others, perhaps, to, uh, to start those other fires, also in black churches. Okay. Imagine a Muslim goes in, has a manifesto. I did this for Islam and Allah, and I'd like to murder white people to start a war between Islam and Christianity. He boom, 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 shoots all those people. And then Muslims start burning churches all across the country. Do you think we'd ever hear the end of it? No. But it's interesting. The media has decided, I don't want to cover that. I don't want to create hysteria around that. I want to create hysteria around Islam. I want to create hysteria around undocumented immigrants, but I don't want to create hysteria. Hey, Leo, let's take it easy now. Church burnings, what's the big deal? You know, maybe they could have burned people alive in a church. What's the big deal? They shot and murdered nine people inside a church in, North, in South Carolina. At least they covered that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, uh, this black church gets burned down again. Are we calling them terrorists? Are we c- covering it nonstop? No, this is the last you'll ever hear of this. So mainstream media, I don't know how much they covered it today, but they're done with it. Never get any coverage tomorrow, and we'll all go on with our lives. Is there a pattern there? Who cares? We're not going to look into it. We're the media. No, we hype up dangers, so-called dangers. By the way, do you know you're seven times more likely to be killed by a right-wing extremist in America than by a Muslim extremist? So does that get seven times the coverage? No. I'm not sure it gets one-seventh the coverage. (laughs) That's exactly right. So ask yourself... Is it the danger that they're covering, or is the coverage dictated by certain preconceptions, stereotypes, and other messages that they want to push? Now, there is a little bit of silver lining of good news in that uh, we were talking earlier today about um, when the the Republican office was firebombed. The Democratic Party raised money to help rebuild it. And JR uh, jokingly wondered if uh, Trump supporters would, because this apparently was done by a Trump supporter, would uh, raise money to fix it because of their apparent uh, implication there. Probably isn't going to happen. But thankfully, uh, a crowdfunding uh, source for the church wanted to raise $10,000, if you could bring up this graphic. As of several hours ago, it had already passed $33,000. Now, I don't know if that's going to be enough to repair uh, the church, but it is at least something. It is continuing, uh, so you can take part in that if you would like uh, as well. That's one way that you can uh, signal solidarity with the people who have When I said that, it it continued to go to the whole thing, because then when I read the articles about the North Carolina office, the Trump office, I forget what exactly happened. If it was a 
bricks or bombs, something thrown through the window was destroyed, it was vandalized, all that stuff. And it was raised, and the articles around it said, Democrats show how, tr- how, how much, how, you know, I guess, not holier than thou wasn't used, but their character when they raised money to, to get this office back in operation and this, this political office going, and even though it's supporting Trump, who's directly against their own candidate. And I was like, sure, I mean, is that the point? To show how great you are? Because it doesn't do anything. If, or, or if the look is to hand out and say, look how great you are. Don't you guys want to come and meet us in the middle? I don't like having conversations with people who don't want anything to do with meeting in the middle or talking about what the real problem is or why we've gotten to this place. So these are gestures just to show how much better you are. You're not better. You're the idiot now. And fine, I'm not against them actually raising money to help them fix this office, but it never happens the other way because they actually don't give a shit about this. I'm still glad they did it, but yeah, you don't expect it to go the other yeah, way. Yeah, I'm not telling them not to. I, I, I wouldn't give them a dime. Yeah. Hey, look, there's a lot of things that are... Uh, Annoying, horrible, etc. On the internet, <laughs> uh, at least this is the upside of the internet. Uh, and yeah. and so, in the old days, you, they never would have gotten the word out, and nobody would have ever raise anything, and they'd have to try to somehow rebuild it on their own. Yeah. So, uh, for all of you who contributed to that, uh, God bless your hearts. And final point is because of the long history of these churches, and as Jenk pointed out, the the long standing tradition of terrorizing, particularly black churches. Many of these churches, when you read about the attacks against them in the past year, they talk about, oh, we can rebuild again because we had to rebuild after 30 years ago, after 60 years ago. And many times the church has had to be rebuilt, at least partially, multiple times in the past hundred years because of recurring terrorism against them. Oh, you know what the terrorism happened in those churches in our history? Because they figured that's where black people are coming together and planning to, to put some kind of coalition of building their lives to make it better in this country that yeah. they've been dragged to and been mistreated this entire time, and that would be too scary for us. But now we hear things about black people. When are you going to get together and fix your neighborhoods and stop shooting each other? What do you have to lose? Well, if you get together and start fixing and figuring a way to, to put everything together without any kind of assistance from our country, you get killed for it. Yeah. Just take my fucking picture so I can go downtown and picture, picture about the one that called me a Let's go next to Louisiana, where there is a very crowded race for a seat in the United States Senate. Of the many candidates, only some are doing well enough in polls that they were allowed to participate in a debate last night in New Orleans at a historically black college. And of the few candidates participating in that debate at the historically black college, one was former Klansman David Duke. He spoke as protesters were outside. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Six candidates faced off in an eerily empty auditorium on the campus of Dillard University, a historically black college in New Orleans. Outside, students and other protesters pushed against doors to get into the building. Dillard officials say they didn't know which candidates would be participating when they agreed to rent the hall to Raycom Media, which set the rules for the televised debate. Unlike presidential debates, for instance, this one was closed to the public. Even journalists had to watch a video feed from a side room. Moments before the debate was set to start, a few people got through a back door, but they were pepper sprayed by police and forced back out. From the debate stage, the former Klansman Duke blamed the disruption on radicals from the Black Lives Matter movement. And it is time we stand up now. This is the tipping point. We're getting outnumbered and outvoted in our own nation. Unless we stand up now, our children have no future.
Duke is one of about two dozen candidates in the contest. Louisiana has an unusual system in which candidates of all parties appear together on the general election ballot. If no one gets a majority, a December runoff between the top two finishers determines the winner. Having the former KKK Grand Wizard in the mix stole focus from the issues at several points in the debate, like when Democrat Foster Campbell had to deny allegations from the other Democrat on the stage, linking him to David Duke in the past. It's not just a lie, it's a damn lie. I have nothing in common with David Duke other than we're probably breathing. Duke's candidacy comes in an election season in which white nationalists have supported Donald Trump in the presidential race. Trump has disavowed Duke's support, yet Duke fashions himself an ally, ready to fight what he too calls a rigged system and take care of Hillary Clinton. The lady should be getting the electric chair being charged with treason. A former one-term state lawmaker, Duke first gained national attention when he came in second in the 1991 race for Louisiana governor. He lost to Democrat Edwin Edwards in a campaign that featured bumper stickers that said, vote for the crook, arguing a corrupt Governor Edwards was better than a white supremacist. Both men later served time in federal prison. Duke is not considered competitive in the Louisiana Senate race, yet drew some fire from the other candidates, including the frontrunner, Republican State Treasurer John Kennedy. Mr. Duke is a convicted felon. Dillard University officials asked students to stay away. One who didn't was political science major Brielle Kennedy. She was briefly detained after pushing her way into the building. They're allowing a terrorist, a neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan member, to be secured in a building in which we pay thousands of dollars to attend annually. Kennedy says she's appalled that such a thing would happen on a historically black campus. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, New Orleans. Marijuana reform. Are you, is that something that you care about? It is something I care about. <laughs> no, we both made jokes about it. But it's not funny to the people who get arrested, yeah. uh, which is over half a million, I think, last year. Um, it, you know, you and I both could have had our lives ruined, not really by smoking it, but by being arrested for it. Right. Um, and, you know, I feel like you had a checklist about let's get rid of a lot of the stupid stuff like opening up Cuba. Right. You know, you came out for gay marriage. Uh, I was hoping ending the drug war would be on that list. It's on the ballot now in nine states in a week, including California for recreational and Arizona and medical in places like North Dakota. Isn't it time the federal government caught up to progressive states like Arizona and North Dakota? <laughs> well, I, he, he, here's what I'm... I have always believed that to the extent that the society legitimately wants to uh, guard against any kind of substance abuse, that you treat it as a public health problem. And, I, and so that's where I think we need to go with pot, uh, alcohol. Uh, and so, so I don't think that legalization is a panacea, but I think that we're going to have to have a more serious conversation about uh, how we are treating 
uh, marijuana and our drug laws generally. Because I'm high. Hey, baby, oh. I'm singing this whole thing wrong. Yeah. Because I'm high. Bring it back, bring it back. Uh, and if I don't sell one copy, I know why. Why, man? Yeah, because hey, I'm high. Because I'm high. Because I'm high. Are you really high, though, man? 5% of Americans live in states where pot is legal for recreational use. But by next Wednesday, that percentage could swell to almost 25%. It's on the ballot in five states, California, Massachusetts, Maine, Arizona, and Nevada. If it passes in those states, it would reflect a significant shift in attitudes. The latest poll shows more than half of Americans favor legalization. The state with the most experience with legal recreational pot is Colorado, which allowed retail sale of the drug starting in 2014. No other state has gone further or faster into the legal weed business, but it's still in its infancy and remains an experiment. So with next week's vote in mind, we went to Colorado to find out what's working and what's not. This county in southern Colorado has been called the Napa Valley of Cannabis for a reason. No community has felt the impact of legalization more powerfully than Pueblo. A former steel town of 160,000 residents, it is now home to over 90 pot-growing facilities. This is the heartland of legal marijuana in America, and it goes on as far as the eye can see. This is enormous. How big is this? We have 36 acres here, and there's 21,600 plants between all the four licenses. 21,600 plants, that's a lot of plants. Bob DeGabriel is a founder of this industrial-scale enterprise, which he runs with his 27-year-old son, Ketch. Just three years ago, he was a real estate developer from North Carolina. Now, he owns Los Sueños Farms, the largest recreational cultivation facility in the country. How did you get into the marijuana business? Came out and looked at it from an investment standpoint then just decided to stay out here, realized that Colorado was really the epicenter of what was happening in the industry. Bob and his partners have invested $10 million in Colorado's tightly regulated industry, which requires that every plant grown by a licensed operator be entered into a database, outfitted with a radio frequency tag, and tracked from seed to sale. This is high-tech, high-security retail cultivation, where 289 cameras track every plant and 22,000 pounds of marijuana are harvested a year, then cured in barrels like wine. Where does it go from here? So from here, it'll go through our trimming machines, and we'll trim it. It will also be inspected by the state for quality control. At Los Sueños Farms, they are on track to rake in about $20 million a year in this budding industry. And they say it has been very good for Pueblo County, too. In so many ways. It's been an economic... Uh, a windfall for the community. Marijuana has created 1,300 jobs and more than 60 businesses in Pueblo. There are 85 employees at Los Sueños, and they all have to pass background checks and be fingerprinted. But while five U.S. states will have legalization of recreational marijuana on the ballot, this Colorado county is considering restricting it. On Election Day, voters in Pueblo will decide whether the county should opt out of the production and sale of recreational pot. That would force Los Sueños Farms out of business within a year. How would that affect you financially? Oh, it would be 
devastating in terms of the amount of money that we put in here and the time that we've put in here. Making it illegal here does absolutely nothing to get cannabis out of here. It just means you have to drive to the next county to purchase it. What recreational flavors do we have today? When recreational marijuana was legalized in Colorado, most counties chose not to allow the production or sale of it. Pueblo did, and there have been both profits and problems ever since. It's affecting the emergency room, it's affecting the operating room, it's affecting just about every aspect of medicine that you can think of. Dr. Stephen Simmerville is a pediatrician and medical director of the Newborn Intensive Care Unit at Pueblo's St. Mary Corwin Medical Center. He supports the ballot initiative to ban recreational pot, in part because he says he's noticed more babies being born with marijuana in their system. His observations are anecdotal, but he's concerned by what he has seen in his own hospital. In the first nine months of this year, 27 babies born at this hospital tested positive for THC, the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. That's on track to be about 15% higher than last year. When was the last time you took care of a baby who tested positive for marijuana? I have babies up on the unit right now who are right positive now. for marijuana. And when were they born? Oh, all of them are within a week. What does the mother say when you say your, your baby just tested positive for marijuana and it can possibly harm the baby? What does the mother say? They are not surprised that it, they're tested positive. Um, obviously, they know they've been smoking marijuana. But they're in disbelief that it's harmful. They frequently say, how can it be harmful? It's a legal drug. Dr. Simmerville says that's a common misconception especially because 25 states have approved marijuana for medical use, for conditions like epilepsy, pain, and stimulation of appetite. But on the federal level, it's still illegal. Today's pot is on average four to five times stronger than it was in the 1980s. It can also get passed on to babies in high concentrations in breast milk. I try to explain to them that even though you're not smoking very much, the baby is getting seven times more than you're taking. Um, and that there's, uh, this drug has been shown to cause harm in developing brains. Research suggests babies exposed to marijuana in utero may develop verbal, memory, and behavioral problems during early childhood. You need to be able to protect babies, and you're going to need to protect teenagers. And by teenagers or developing brains, you have to take in mind that marijuana potentially permanently affects brain growth until people are 25 or 30. In the first 10 months of this year, 71 teenagers came into the emergency room at this hospital with marijuana in their system, which is on track to be about 70% higher than last year. That worries Dr. Simmerville because evidence is emerging that heavy teenage use, using four to five days a week, may be linked to long-term damage in areas of the brain that help control cognitive functions like attention, memory, and decision-making. It's not known if there's any amount of marijuana that is safe for the developing brain, which may still be maturing during the mid to late 20s. Law enforcement officers in Pueblo County believe they, too, are seeing more marijuana-related problems. They said uh, the black market will disappear. Well, I can tell you the black market is alive and well and thriving. In fact, it's exploding. You're used to seeing this much marijuana. I am not. Yeah, usually it's the indoors. Sheriff Kirk Taylor is aggressively tackling a problem known as illegal home grows. Criminal organizations are coming to Colorado to grow marijuana illegally for out-of-state diversion. Sheriff Taylor says they had one to two busts a year before recreational marijuana was legalized. In the last six months, they've had 36. Who's behind the illegal grows? Different groups of folks. 
Cuban nationals from Florida. Uh, we've busted Russians from New York. The pattern that they've shown here in the last six months is they'll come in and buy a home or rent a home or a series of homes, and they'll set up grows in those homes, uh, whether it be in the garages and the outbuildings. Uh, very sophisticated. Um, they're hot tapping into the uh, existing electrical grids. We were with Sheriff Taylor in Pueblo as SWAT team members and federal drug enforcement agents gathered before dawn to stage one of the largest illegal home grow busts in the country. If you guys aren't familiar, this is a huge operation. Five counties involved, about seven different agencies. More than 150 deputies and agents armed with 13 search warrants were preparing for a coordinated strike. The target of the day's raid was a drug cartel from Southeast Asia, suspected of converting 10 rental homes into grow operations that are hiding in plain sight. So the feeling is this is organized crime here. Absolutely. This is not a one or two person operation. No. This is not a mom and pop, uh, let's grow a little weed. This is organized crime. This raid was three months in the planning and came with heavy artillery. It netted a number of suspects and resulted in the seizure of more than 22,000 pounds of marijuana plants in all, with a potential value of over $7 million. That amount is doubled if it's sold out of state, but these plants will be destroyed. Illegal grows like this are not the only problem cops here are facing. Some people are getting high, then getting behind the wheel. And there is currently no field sobriety test in use that is the equivalent of the breathalyzer for alcohol though Colorado police are experimenting with roadside oral swab tests. There's huge differences between alcohol and marijuana, and that's one of the things the public really needs to understand, is they think, well, we can take all the rules and everything we've set up for alcohol and just transfer them over, and they can't do that. Dr. Marilyn Hustis, former chief of chemistry and drug metabolism at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, has been studying marijuana's effects on the human body for more than 25 years. When you take alcohol, it has its effects and then it leaves the body. When you take cannabis, it gets into the tissues of your body and is stored. It can be stored in the fat. It's stored in the fat. How about in the brain? And the brain is a very fat, fatty tissue. And so we know that it's still in the brain when you can no longer measure it in the blood. So far, Colorado hasn't seen a huge spike in driving while high or in marijuana abuse by teens. But the data is still being collected on pot's overall impact on the state. All these issues sit on the shoulders of Governor John Hickenlooper, who was originally against the legalization of recreational marijuana. My biggest concern is that we're not collecting data. And what I've told other governors is don't wait to get for the laws to change. Start collecting baseline data now, how many kids are using marijuana. Start looking at accidents, was there THC involved, so that we really have good baselines so that as we accumulate more data, if, if they do legalize it, we can see what the effects of legalization itself really are. They are already learning from some early mistakes. After a number of people overdosed on marijuana edibles, Colorado implemented new rules, limiting the amount of THC in products and requiring new labels detailing the potency of each serving. On the positive side, Governor Hickenlooper says last year, revenue from marijuana brought in $141 million in taxes, and he's encouraged that arrests for possession are down almost 50 percent since 2012. No one can argue that the old system was a disaster. 
we had an old system where kids had open access to marijuana and everything was black market. There was no regulation. There was all illegal activity. We were creating whole generations of kids that were growing up thinking that to break the law and make money, make money selling drugs was perfectly fine. That's what we're trying to fight against. Is it fair to say this is tricky? It is fair to say this is more than tricky. This, you know, this is about the hardest, most complicated thing in public life that I've ever had to work on. Five states have recreational marijuana on the ballot. I know. What kind of advice are you giving them? I urge caution. My recommendation has been that they should go slowly and probably wait a couple years and let's make sure that we get some good vertical studies to make sure that there isn't uh, a dramatic increase in teenage usage, that there isn't uh, a significant increase in, uh, you know, abuse, like while driving. Uh, We don't see it yet, but the, the data is not perfect, and we don't have enough data yet to make that decision. So you're not confident that we really know what's going on yet to say, go ahead. Right, not without certainty. I I feel confident enough now that I'm not trying to turn the clock back, right? Even with all the problems we have and the challenges, I think we might be able to do this. But I'm not so confident that I'm telling other states, yeah, go for it. This is going to be, this is a slam dunk. They they, They would drop bombs on African villages that would blow that village apart and everything in it. Man, woman, child, and baby. No outcry, no sympathy, no support, no, no concern, because the press didn't project it in such a way that it would be designed to get your sympathy. They know how to put something so that you'll sympathize with it, and they know how to put it so you'll be against it. I'm telling you, they are masters. And here in the KUOW studios, I'm Jeannie Yandel. And since you can't see me, I'm just going to tell you something. I'm a white person which comes as no surprise to local journalists Reagan Jackson and Monica Guzman. They were recently part of a panel at Town Hall, and the topic was journalism so white. Bill Radke asked them what exactly that means. It was born as a hashtag on Twitter, but it's also a movement to draw attention to the fact that a lot of American journalism is often sort of built by and for white culture and maybe excluding some other communities in the country that are part of American life. Reagan, you looked at some demographics earlier this year for Seattle newsrooms. and How are we looking? Uh, we're looking very white, <laughs> which I suppose isn't, isn't any huge shock given the, given the demographics of Seattle as well. But um, for me, I guess what comes up with Journalism So White isn't the numbers as much as it is how the numbers are impacting the quality of the media that we're receiving and impacting the the bias of the media that we're receiving. Will you show us that bias? Show you that bias. (laughs) Give us some examples. Well, sometimes it's about tone. One example is recently the Seattle Times wrote an article about a local artist, Hollis Wong Ware, who is Asian, and in their headline they used the word sidekick. That's not cool to use that term, right? Because to Hollis, to the people affected, this is way more than language. This is a message about how people are viewed. It may seem subtle, but only to some of us, and it seems very direct to others. Yeah, I remember that, especially because it was a time when when we would we wanted to be celebrating Hollis, right? Hollis is amazing. She's done so many amazing things in the community. She's just an incredible um, artist and an incredible talent. And for for the Times to just kind of do this tongue-in-cheek marginalization of her, a diminishing of her, 
it just, ooh, it hurt. I didn't, it really hurt. And it, I guess I get really tired of also having to be the tone police. <laughs> I don't want to be the tone police. I don't, I feel like the way that the conversation is set up, it, it feels very antagonistic. Like I'm always like, this isn't right. This isn't right. And here I am trying to like write this counter narrative. And I don't want to do that. I've lost interest in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not our responsibility to teach everyone. <laughs> it's not. If we do it, it's a gift and you're welcome. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like external copy editing, right, of community relevance and resonance. But that shouldn't be external. That mm-hmm. should be internal. That should come from within the newsroom so that these issues of trust and whether people feel represented just aren't constantly up for debate. Why do you think that is external? KUOW and probably every media organization will tell you that we want to be more diverse. We want to cover the world. Why is journalism so white? Well, Yoda would say, do or do not, there is no try. Like, (laughs) you know, you want to be more diverse. What's stopping KOUW from being more diverse? KUOW. It's not us. Like, we're out here. They're like plenty of journalists of color. Like, we were just on a panel with five other (laughs) journalists of color. But at this point, for me, I'm less interested, too, in in being put into white structures and having to go through all the hoops it it takes to to be included. Maybe I don't want to be included. Maybe I want to just do my own thing. One of the things I really like about writing for The Globalist and writing for, for the South Seattle Emerald is that those are two publications where where I feel like people of color are central. The intention from the beginning <laughs> was inclusive, and so that's how it's continued. And I feel like with these other institutions that are predominantly white-based, they are continuing as they started. Re- whether or not we add in a black person here or a Latino there, like there's not ultimately a shift in culture that allows for centralization of our voices and our experiences. It's still something other. It's still something counter-narrative. It's still something deemed or or seen as non-dominant whereas with these other publications and these other other outlets we are the narrative we've been talking about the media are there personal stories you want to share that makes this come to life oh okay well as you're speaking what what kind of came up for me is why i'm a journalist in general I became a journalist kind of unintentionally. It's like it's in a very backwards way. And then I went to brunch with some friends and I was talking to uh, who, uh, Alex and Sarah and Jessica, who end up being the, the founders of the Seattle Globalist, just about international education and my thoughts on, on diversity there. And from that one conversation, Alex invited me to write a story. And I did. And I did it just because I was interested in it. It was something that I was really passionate about. But I did it without any expectation that it would be published because I never really considered myself a journalist. And a big part of that is because I always thought journalism was only about facts. You, it was a, a a form of media in which you couldn't really put in your your thoughts or your any any anything personal, and that had to be very removed. And I I think that because that's the journalism I grew up seeing. But through that experience. I learned that actually the stories that I was I was finding in the community were, were worth telling and that it was something that I could do actually as a, as a profession. You know, that idea of journalism being objective sounds like a very white uh, point of view to me because like that we can distance 
ourselves from ourselves. You know, that's that seems like a very white mm. attitude it to is. have. It's yeah, we've been talking in the industry about objectivity and you know, does it really exist? Can we really embrace it? For a long time, and I think initially the conversation was about ideological and political objectivity. Mm-hmm. Now we're in this incredible revolution when it comes to how we think about our identities in all these different ways. And journalists as professionals, you know, we pride ourselves on thinking, it doesn't matter who I am. I can tell anybody's story. And I think that's one of the things about journalism so white that is particularly hard to swallow because there is a criticism. It's a critique about, are you sure? Really? Do you think that just by being, you know, an open human being, you can unlock all the stories you need to? Maybe there's more you need to do, more than you think. And that's that's a real challenge. That's where a lot of the resistance, I think, comes. And that's where some of the toughest conversations need to go. Mm-hmm. You need to evolve. Right. You need to change. You need to be um, to, to gain a different skill set in order to remain relevant. But again, that's actually kind of not the conversation for me. My conversation is more about what can I do as a journalist of color to empower other people in my communities to have a voice and to have a place where their voices are, are going to be heard? I'd love for more people in my community to have access to KUOW, to be able to be on the radio, to be able to tell their stories in a, in a broader platform. But in the meantime, I'm starting where I am. I'm starting with the Emerald. I'm starting with, with the Globalist. And we're doing, I think, the most exciting journalism in the city right now. Like, we're killing it. We're setting a bar. We're setting it high. Think of it as a a challenge. I want to see white media raise their standards to come up to where we are at. That was Monica Guzman, a technology and media columnist and co-founder of the newsletter The Ever Gray. We also heard from Reagan Jackson, a writer at the Seattle Globalist and the South Seattle Emerald. They talked to Bill Radke about journalism so white. Name your devil. I've never seen an election like this, ever. The stakes are sky high, yes. But the options are bottom low, especially for black folks. None promise relief from the hell we inhabit in communities across America. And as ever, black folks hold the key. But to what? Certainly not our freedom. Mass incarceration is still a foreboding shadow over our lives, an incubus that sucks the lives out of millions, even after eight years of the first black president. And cops are just wilding, a blue riot of arrogance, mayhem, and unfettered impunity. And they mostly remain as untouched as ever. Does anybody really, really now, we're all adults here, aren't we? Does anyone think any candidate has a clue as to how this problem can be alleviated? Have you really heard anything? Then choose your demon. Just know what you're actually choosing. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 5th. 2016. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory broadcast. Feel free, dial in the number to dial 641-715-3640. 
The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. couple quick things before uh, we get to callers. Uh, if you have any uh, commentary, suggestions, thoughts you would like to share. Uh, first, listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, the blog address is racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener-supported counter-racist radio PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Again, sincere thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested in the cows uh, nearly eight years. I hope the broadcast has been constructive uh, in helping folks get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works. Quickly, uh, as I've stated consistently, accuracy is important. Uh, Last week uh, on the compensatory call-in, I think we were discussing the segment on the 50-year anniversary of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Bobby Seale, I think he was talking about having, I think he made a distinction saying that uh, back in the 60s when they went to the California State Capitol, they did not have offensive weapons. They had defensive weapons. Uh, And I said that I think a part of... uh, making the judgment ascertaining whether or not a firearm is offensive or defensive. I think a part of that entails whether or not it's automatic. We had a listener uh, write in who has uh, a little bit more firearms training uh, than Gusty Renegade. Uh, He wrote in, he said, uh, I'm no expert, me either, not even close. Defensive or home defense type firearms uh, are a subjective, almost discretionary term or give that again. Defensive or home defense type firearm is a subjective, almost discretionary term. Usually it has to do with round capacity or how many cartridges it can hold. Shotguns are usually considered defensive because of lack of penetration and range. Revolvers are considered more defensive than, say, a pistol that holds 18 rounds. Also could be related to the likelihood of overpenetration or ability to go through walls and such. For example, Chris Kyle from our book, uh, book club may use a specialized sniper rifle that only holds 10 large cartridges but shoots through cinder blocks. Semi-auto versus auto is not a deciding factor in defensive talk since most of the time an average citizen in this country isn't going to legally own anything automatic. There we go. Strive for accuracy. I say that all the time, and uh, including Gus T. Renegade. Uh, same listener had a question, or a query, rather. Uh, so the shooting that happened in uh, Iowa this week, right? Uh, the war on cops that you did not hear about this week, but the shooting in Iowa, uh, two enforcement officers were shot and killed. Uh, the suspect in custody, Scott Michael 
green. I didn't include audio of him. I couldn't really find anything juicy uh, enough to include that really hit the points that I thought were most uh, important, although people did a lot of writing uh, about this throughout the week. Uh, Mr. King at the New York Daily News and quite a few others. Uh, but the uh, inquiry about this shooting, because uh, the suspect, Mr. Green, uh, suspected race soldier, he had previous altercations with enforcement officials. Uh, he was ejected from a high school football game because he was uh, harassing, terrorizing uh, black spectators, uh, black family members, no doubt. I'm sure some black mothers watching their children. Uh, he was harassing them with the Confederate flag. He was upset and the police asked him to leave uh, the contest. So all of that certainly should be thought about. Uh, this is uh, a white man who has uh, allegedly killed two enforcement officials and somehow he can be taken into custody without being shot 41 times. But the query was listening to the Iowa guy who was very articulate. It really sounds like it was going to be a frame up on black Iowans just didn't go as planned. Have you gleaned any details supporting this presumption feeling I have? If so, please share on the compensatory call in. Uh, I have not, but we certainly have other folks. Uh, I might have missed something. Feel free to chime in if you have commentary on that. Uh, we did play a sound clip on the church in Mississippi uh, that was vandalized, terrorized, a historically black church. Uh, the most important point, terrorism. Uh, I was stunned that the Young Turks, they used the term terrorism as much as they did in the clip right on. At any rate, uh, what I think also is interesting is when I first heard about that, I thought that seems kind of suspicious like that seems very flagrant like calling attention obvious uh, to put the vote Trump uh, on it and not just nigger and call it a day or whatever the case may be uh, Pam at her blog spot Pam who will be on the program Wednesday uh, doing our post election wrap up this coming Wednesday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific but at her blog site racismws.com uh, she has a post, historically black church in Mississippi burned and vandalized. The thing, the main point of this post is this could be a ploy. The suspicion that I was sensing could be, hey, Trump is racist. You niggers, if you want to be protected from racists, go vote for Hillary. Uh, that that could be uh, the type of thing that's happening here. I certainly, again, and I, I'm sure Pam would agree, the most important thing, regardless of who or what the motivation, black people being terrorized, that is the most important thing and the long tradition of black places of worship being terrorized. But that notwithstanding, I did think that theory was interesting. And again, she'll be with us this coming Wednesday. Last thing before we get to the callers, uh, I had been thinking last few days before the election is finally done with, I would probably try this out at some point if I was on the job or any other environment. Someone asked me who I was going to vote for. I'm voting for Obama. <laughs> to say it with a straight face too. That's my dude. I'm, I'm voting for Obama. I'm voting for Matt. I might even, I might even clown hard. I'm voting for Obama for the rest of my life. I'm going to be I'm going to be writing his name in on every ballot, but I'm voting for president Obama. I'm so disgruntled with all the choices. Let's just keep Obama, man. He's, he's done right by me and just, you know, see how folks respond to that. But anywho, the number again is six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is five six four nine four 
three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh the first few folks who dialed in who have a hand up line should be open uh my quick reminder again uh if we could not use metaphors take five minutes to share whatever you need to uh just make sure everyone gets an opportunity to speak so if we could all go one time uh and then again if you could take five minutes uh to Share whatever you need so everyone gets to speak and no metaphors. Uh, Say that consistently just for the compensatory call in. Uh, It's been my experience that metaphors frequently are employed to deceive uh, knowingly, unwittingly. uh, And a lot of times they are comparing things that are not accurate. So the metaphors and what have you, if we could not use those today, just be explicit, direct flagrant about what it is that we're trying to say keep it plain keep it simple thank you kindly first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed yes may i be heard yes sir all right greetings guests and to the rest of the callers so um a couple of my friends and i we were reviewing the previous debates with hillary clinton and donald trump and we came to an agreement that it was pretty ridiculous and um, we're going to, that it's just pretty ridiculous how, how life came to be because I just remember when I was little, I I was wishing for like world peace and um, just peace and harmony throughout the world. And now we have a debate where, we have two presidents in the United States and we're going to be messed up either way. But then again, we all chose Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump just based on view, their views and what they're going to do uh, when they, if they're elected for president. And just thinking about that, I just kept thinking about, I was comparing the United States to the rest of the world because I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but I know that the United States is pretty messed up but now I realize that the whole world is messed up and either way we're just gonna we're not gonna live a happy life this this is not a utopian society and we're just gonna live in hell and war it's just all gonna be war as long as I'm living it's just gonna be war I don't see any time I don't see how anywhere or any place on this earth uh, I don't see how anywhere or anything anything on this earth is going to come to peace or harmony. And that's all I wanted to share. Thanks for asking. Always a pleasure hearing from our young scholar in the Bay Area. Glad you could uh, call in, sir. We'll get your look forward to your post-election wrap-up next week. Uh, Other folks uh, that we have not heard from, if you dialed in and have a hand up, feel free. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Oh, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Go ahead, sis. I'll wait. I'll wait for you. Okay. Thank you. Greetings, everybody. Um, I took a lot of notes. Just a few things overall that I was kind of hearing. In one of the clips, um, they were talking about uh, how the media covers stories. I don't know who that was, but it was two guys. I'm assuming that both of them are um, white, 
and I was realizing how refined the one that was really, really over-dramatizing his concern, because he was clearly lying. One of the reasons I do really appreciate the podcast is because it makes you, or excuse me, not the podcast, or the call, but listen to people's voice and their, um, like the rise and the fall of people's voice and to discern whether someone could possibly be lying just off of that. And the way that he was talking, it was clear that he really doesn't care. He, he's talking so much, he's putting all this emoting and energy into trying to say how the media doesn't care, when in fact, he really doesn't care. And I thought that was just another wonderful example of their refinement, because they can just act really, really well and confuse so many of us into thinking that they might actually care, or maybe they could care, when in fact, they really don't. And then it had me also think about because tying in a few of the other clips that we heard from the artist who replaces certain figures with um, non-white people to the woman who opens her comic bookstore, um, our marginalization, our oppression, and our continued subjugation, it really funds all of the world. There's so much going on. Just a piecemeal little tiny opportunities. And it creates something for journalists to talk about. It creates something for police to do. It creates something for social workers to do. It's, I mean, us being in this position, non-white people being con constantly victimized and struggling always to figure out who we are, where we are, what time it is, and where we're going, and just try to get our feet planted on solid ground, just funds the entire world. It's it's really disheartening and saddening when you really when I when I think about it because for me the white people are extremely voyeuristic and they just love watching us scramble to pick up pieces of nothing and not really know any much about anything. Um, and then with the debate that they held at the HBCU, I thought the most interesting thing about that was Dr. Wilson talks about how white supremacy functions off of our emotional response to it. And I didn't, I was, of course, listened to the clip, but I also saw like a few images online. And um, to me, that's a perfect example of that. Of, naturally, I totally get the feeling, you know, they should not be at the HBCU, especially as the young woman articulated so well. They pay thousands of dollars to attend, you know, tuition to attend this school. They don't want racist white supremacists there. Um, but really, in fact, just being manipulated to emotionally respond in such a visceral way. So now there's some more stuff to fund, some more things. Um, and then I, and then the thing about weed, um, I thought it was so funny, like, because I didn't realize it cost so much money. But when he, but he said he invested $10 million to start that, I was just like, exactly. By the time it even opens up for black people to be able to access any kind of economic um, upliftment at all from the legalization of weed, it's going to be monopolized already. Like, we don't have $10 million to invest to buy fancy lights or land or certificates or papers or what protection or whatever it is that these white people were able to do. I mean, he just up moved and gave this 27-year-old a job. Like, now they're, you know, owning this company, and here we are still getting locked up over it. And I thought that was just fascinating. And then when, so when white people do it, they have all the money to do it right. And then when all non-white people do it, um, they called it highly organized crime because people found a loophole, as, as non-white people always do, find a loophole 
to figure out how to get in on it too. And now you're just further, um, I don't want to say locked up because that doesn't sound, but you know, and it's like you're further penalized for trying to take advantage of something that you don't have the means to take advantage of the way that white people do. Um, and then just the final thing I'll say, uh, Mumia said, pick your demon, just know what you're choosing. And I think I know what Trump is. I'm not participating. I, that's just not my thing. But for some, I, I have a very strong feeling Trump is going to get elected. And I'm not, I'm scared. I'm not going to lie. I have fear around that. I do live in Virginia. I'm 1842. Uh, these white people over here are getting real, as they like to try to call us, uppity. And it's, it's real tense over here. Um, but at least I know what it is, you know. So, like, I'm more prepared for Trump than I am for Hillary because she's, she's so refined. I appreciate Trump's unrefined self. Because then it's going to let these white people just be unrefined and all this unrefinement can just stop so we can see what it is that we're dealing with. And I'll meet myself. Thank you. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to the calls and the listeners. Um, I wasn't able to hear everything. I was kind of in and out because I was helping my wife with some stuff. So, But I did get to hear some things. Um, there were a few things that I did want to address, though. Um, first, um, I believe it was on, yes, actually, it was yesterday when we did the book study club. We were talking about um, the color white making the first move in chess, and I wanted to speak on that. And I just uh, thought about the fact that white making the first move in chess is synonymous with white aggression on a planetary scale against all living things and especially black people and non-white people. Um, to me, just the whole concept of uh, the, the, white, the white side of the board having that preemptive ability to get that, uh, that, that edge up on the, the black chess player because the, essentially, like Dr. Wilson said previously on the show, um, the, the, the white side of the chessboard is playing offense, defense, and the black side of the chessboard is playing defense, offense. And um, exactly what the previous caller was just saying in regards to uh, her discussion on the marijuana industry, it's, that's how the system is set up to the point where when everything first takes off, only white people can benefit, and then by the time they open it up for, for everyone else to get in behind the white people who always, always get to pioneer anything that's of any value in the society, um, like she said, that they've taken up all of, the, all of the, the lucrative spaces and there's really no place else for non-white people, especially black people, to get in and try and do anything positive for themselves. So I totally agree. And it kind of um, went back to the whole um, idea of the, the white side of the chessboard moving first for me. Um, the other thing was, uh, Donald Trump has talked quite a bit about building walls to keep the Mexicans out and, you know, um, shutting down the Islamic terrorists and all the other craziness that he says. But yet it came out uh, yesterday in a, a couple of articles that his wife actually came into this country illegally and had over 20 modeling jobs in which she paid no taxes. And she also lied to the immigration officials when she got into this country 20 years ago. So all of the things, with him being the law and order candidate, with all the things he's speaking about in reference to these illegal aliens and all the stuff that they're doing, he should be building a wall to keep his wife out because, I mean, he said it himself. 
when immigrants come here, they should speak the language. She doesn't speak the language well. Um, they should not break the law. His wife broke the law on multiple occasions, lied to the immigration officers, worked 20 job modeling jobs without paying any taxes, so she robbed the U.S. government. So she should be in jail and awaiting deportation. So I'm waiting to see if anyone really brings that up in regards to um, what happens between now and Tuesday. Um, also, I was uh, learning about recently, I think it was Fox News, that was busted um, creating a fake crisis scenario video where they were basically staging a bombing and in the staging of the bombing they had these actors uh, acting as if they actually were victims of the bombing and somehow they were caught on tape setting up this false crisis scenario and what I'm finding is that there's more and more of these things happening where there's ordinary citizens walking down the street and an event will take place that seems to be a catastrophic emergency or a potential terrorist event and these events are actually crisis actors that are acting out these events, and these events are turning up on the news and being reported as authentic. So it's something for um, for us to look out for, especially people who are in big cities and things of that nature, because I think we're going to see a lot more of that, especially leading up to the election and then after the election with whatever plans they have to create some sort of martial law scenario to um, put black people and non-white people on lockdown after the new candidate gets into office, if there is a new candidate. And um, lastly, I wanted to bring up an event that took place on Halloween in uh, New Jersey on Rutgers uh, campus. There was a young black male, Halloween night. Uh, he was on campus, and he went up to two white students with a fake gun and attempted to play out a robbery. And he ended up, he was a basketball player on their team. He was uh, kicked off the basketball team. He's now in jail awaiting a trial. And essentially, he claims that he was playing a prank. It was a prank he was playing on these girls on campus, and now he's basically potentially ruining the rest of his life. And his father, I saw his father on the news, uh, just basically talking to him, uh, talking in his defense, saying that he's not a thug, and that was the exact words he used, and that um, he's trying to protect his son from, you know, from things really getting going catastrophically wrong for his future, but that he's not a, a bad person. It's just that, you know, he was actually playing a prank, and the prank went wrong. And I was just thinking, again, Gus, you always talk about us speaking to our children and educating them about the system of white supremacy and how it works. And, you know, sadly, his dad did not do a good job, and his mom did not infuse him with that understanding, and now he's on the verge of ruining his life. And the sad part is he's lucky they didn't kill him. I mean, once they went to, to apprehend him after the girls filed a complaint, he's lucky the cops didn't just shoot him. And find, cause they did find the fake gun that he had that they claim he used allegedly. But the idea is that, you know, the danger that he is now in and that he could have been in as far as losing his life, um, no one's even talking about that fact. So it's just something I wanted to uh, bring, up, bring up because I saw it recently. And um, just if you have children in college, you have children in high school, um, please educate them on the system of white supremacy so they don't potentially end up in a situation like this young black male. Thank you, and I'll uh, mute my line. Hello? I could be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, greetings to everybody. Uh, shoot, man, I just got a couple of things, man. Uh, you know, first, I, I, I don't know what made them non-white or uh, them Asian people, and it's funny because we were just, somebody was just mentioning yesterday about how the Asians be, or uh, just, you know, they, they, they got the whole white supremacy thing figured out, and they just trying to, you know, uh, blend in with it and make their little way. So now they done went up to Colorado thinking they're going to go marijuana and all that, right? 
Georgia, or uh, and then uh, I don't know if anybody seen uh, in the USA today they had a white man down in uh, in South Carolina, and he didn't he didn't uh, did something. It was a white girl and and uh, her fiance, and they they ain't find the man yet, but they found the uh, now now check this out. He a registered sex offender. He got a, a mortgage. He, he a mortgage broker or something like that right there. Got his own business. So the white girl worked for him. Oh, and he a licensed pilot as a registered sex offender, right? Now, he, they didn't find the white girl in his house uh, chained up like a dog in a, in a big metal container. So, uh, yeah, I seen that in the paper today, in the USA Today. And then uh, I kind of, I, I, I like uh, Brother Mumil. Uh, uh, Jabal, uh, however you said, man, excuse me for that, y'all, but uh, I like that brother. And see, what I've been thinking to the uh, to the people been talking about the election, right? See, you know, you've been had a whole lot of talk about the black vote. We need to get I'm, 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 I'm trying to do this for the African American. And so we already know that our vote ain't never really meant nothing, no way, right? But what I'm thinking is, I think white people throw that out there, and they just want to see how many black folks is still believe in this democracy and believe in going down there and vote. See, people don't need to participate in none of that at all. You know what I mean? And I think that's basically what the brother was trying to say when he said, pick your demon. You know, if you're going to go down there and pick, whichever way you go, you're picking a demon, somebody that ain't for you. You know what I mean? And uh, with that, man, I'm going to move my line. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to um, comment um, collectively on just how they, when I listen to the clips, I just notice on every issue that concerns us, which is all the clips, they just act as if they're just so unaware or it's not all of us. It's it's just like it never, nothing ever gets resolved or there's no... There's no intention on solving the problem. They're just bringing it up or letting us maybe say a couple of things about it just to say, okay, well, we said something about it because they have no intentions on resolving the issues. I was listening to them talk about church burnings and how they were burning up the churches and then how they just make light when they're just making the descriptions and it's just like a riddle or a joke. It's... and nothing gets resolved. They're just talking about it. It's just, we're just having talks and okay, we're going to rebuild maybe one day and you just rebuild and everybody's just talking. There's no action. It, they're just talking and they're continuing to do all the cruel things that they've been doing to it. And then they come across as if they're, um, like when they're talking to the younger, um, group of, um, racist or suspected racists, they try to use little words to make it sound as if they're hip or they're they're really trying or, yeah, I, I didn't even know that. I think that's really messed up. What what could we do or not do? And then with this um, marijuana, them legalizing marijuana and um, or putting that on the ballot and um, the babies coming testing positive for the um, THC, I noticed that... Um, before, um, like certain hospitals, they don't let you have these babies um, 
they don't let you keep them. They would take them. Like Kaiser will take your baby from you and put them and put it in the system if they test with positive with THC. So they may be legalizing the drug, but it still affects us because they're testing our babies and they're coming back with this stuff. So they're just warning us that now we're going to start taking your babies just from every hospital when we test them and they have um, this weed in them, even though we say it's legal. And that's all. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening to everybody. Um, hope everybody's having a good weekend. Uh, a couple of things, um, just observations. Um, I wasn't even sure if we talked about it last week, but I saw it pop up again. Um, the Herman Cain story about groping uh, a female. I don't remember who it is, um, but I've just found that interesting in reference to everything that was going on to Mr. Trump and I just came to the assessment that they had to make sure the yeah, they had to make sure that it wasn't just gonna be Mr. Trump groping somebody. You had to throw out another black male doing it as well. Um and then also uh and you guys might have talked about this last week, but I saw the article again where um, I wasn't aware uh, that Nate Parker had actually gone to Penn State, and there was an article, I think it was in the Post, talking about uh, Mr. Parker and referencing him with the Penn State scandal with Janet Sandusky. And even though the article said he didn't have to do anything to do with any of that, they were saying, we just need to investigate this just to make sure that you know these things are not tied together. And it was just very, very interesting because I know people are trying, Mr. Parker's kind of going away in the media, but he'd done movies for, he did Red Tails, he did, you know, movies with Denzel Washington, Spike Lee, a lot of Steven Spielberg, a lot of filmmakers, and I'm sure that they know a little bit about his background. So just putting that into context of why all this stuff came about, I think we all know what the answer is. And so, you know, racism, white supremacy. Um, the other thing was, uh, the clip in reference to loving um, in that film, um, I think it's very interesting. I think it's very interesting how uh, the grandson was stating that the mother vehemently denied that she was black, but to me that just goes into the amount of confusion that he has because it didn't matter because the people that were in charge apprehended them and were going to put them in jail. So even his logic behind it, it just is like, I think the young lady said it was an emotional statement and it just, you just think about the logic. It's like, well, you can be American Indian. It doesn't matter what you are in the system of white supremacy. Well, okay. She was an American Indian. Well, what happened to them? It was just, just the logic, just the logic behind the whole statement it was just very interesting. And then um, the young lady, I mean, she said something that's been on my mind all week, but how just our dysfunction is worldwide. But I remember somebody said something a couple of weeks ago, and it made so much sense. And it was just that we just had a few people that are becoming um, just less confused. And I want to give Gus so many props um, about the show that he did the other day with Black Expat. And um, I mentioned this to Mr. Fox on his YouTube station was the way that you delicately help people to not be confused is just outstanding. And I actually 
in my personal life, tried it, tried it, but not today. I was just talking to somebody, and somebody said, yeah, I don't trust that lady because she's white. And I said, oh, she might be a suspected racist. And the lady just looked at me and said, yeah, you know what, you're probably right about that. And I said, man, what if each person as an individual was just having conversations with people just like that, even in reference to talking to other non-white people about the election and just making a flat statement. You're not badgering anybody. You're not telling them their views are stupid or you're an idiot, but just small things to help people to be more constructive, and you'd be surprised at, at how we could get this problem solved overnight. And I went over a little of my time, but I apologize. I'm in my line. Hutton? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening for the callers. Gus, that was a great show you had with the African lady. Uh, well, the black lady who lives in Africa. That was a very good show. I love when guests uh, kind of start thinking and they start to get it, you know, like, hmm, okay, I'm going to think about that. I, I like that. Um, did you get the article I sent you about the football team? Where the, they, they refused to play them because they were so good? Exactly. Um, you know, I, it was a football team um, that appears they're not an all-black football team. They do have some white players on the team. But um, they, they were 8 and all, and um, the kids were big. You know, black kids tend to be a little big, I think, bigger than white kids. And um, one of the big kids sacked the quarterback. And um, the coach ran out on the field and started verbally assaulting the kid. And um, not to mention the verbal assaults that their parents got from the people in the crowd. And um, what ended up happening was um, the referees kicked that coach out the game. And when he went to the parking lot, I guess he was watching from his car, um, the, the um, a kid that made the you know sack on the quarterback made another good play, and um, it turned out that the kid, um, this coach ran back on the field and punched the kid in the stomach, which caused the kid to him to stop the game. This kid had to be taken to the hospital, but yet no charges was ever brought on the cop, on the on the um the coach. So I called around, you know, trying to find out what happened with this whole thing. And, man, this lady cursed me out on the phone from the police department when I called there to ask for information. And I just thought that was very, um, you know, very telling. Um, the last little piece I wanted to add, um, they had me working in the emergency room last night, overnight shift. And, um, like I said, man, no one advocates for the black patients. So, you know, I'm 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 um sweeping the floor and um you know, the lady's like, Please help me, please help me. I haven't eaten, I've been here for four hours. So I said, Oh my god, you know, and all I did was went over to one of the nurses and said, That lady's been is in there starving, you know, and I give her a sandwich. They said, No, we'll bring it to her and they went and bought her a sandwich. It was that simple. And I just thought, man, you know, uh all these black nurses and things that work here They'll just walk right past someone, not all of them, but for the most part. Um, and I just thought that was very telling because um, people advocate for the people who speak Spanish and the people who speak uh, Philippines or whatever other languages, but no one advocates for black people. And I'm using my line thinking. Why did the uh, police 
or the folks get upset when you were calling to get information about what happened with the uh, incident? They said, Where, who are you from? I said, I'm a reporter from New York. This made all the way up to New York. Oh, my God. I'll try to just mind your fucking business and um, hung the phone up on me. Wow. <laughs> and that was, that was the police, the lady from the police department. Don't like Negroes asking too many questions, man. Oh, yeah, I'm sure New York probably one of them uppity Negroes, you know. Um, but just very interesting. Very interesting. Fascinating. Um, I'll mute my line, Justin. Right on. Uh, other folks uh, that we haven't uh, heard from, if you have commentary, uh, folks have thoughts on that that piece on cannabis, the longer version. President Obama was talking to Bill Maher. He was a guest on his program this week, but the longer segment was from 60 Minutes. People think that was just more propaganda, uh, reefer madness, like uh, 3.0. Uh, folks have any thoughts on that since that is going to be on the ballot this coming week as well? Any folks we haven't heard from? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is uh, Ken Steele uh, calling in from Orange County, California. And I wanted to uh, touch on the Loving movie that is coming out. Uh, I believe I read a report saying that this movie was going to be shown at the African American History Museum. And I thought it was very interesting that this movie is coming out after um, the birth of a nation. After all of the hoopla, uh, or rather the, um, all of the trouble that this movie has um, encountered due to the rape allegation that Nate Parker has suffered, um, or that he was acquitted from, um, I thought it was interesting that they are promoting this movie that seems to depict um, sexual violence. Uh, it seems to be depicting rape as romance and i think that this is something this is a trend that we've seen in um narratives that uh discuss interracial sexual relationships such as the movie i believe um, pocahontas that was another movie in which a minor was uh, i guess coerced or forced into a relationship with an older person and uh, with an adult who was white and, um, and this is portrayed as something that's acceptable um, for children. And I think that this movie is going to confuse a good number of non-white people. I think that um, this movie is deliberately being shown to, I, I, suspect, this to, I suspect this to further um, this uh, program that they're running to, I guess, reinforce the notion that um, non-white people and white people should be engaging in relationships and that this is the height of uh, love um, in a um, non-homosexual um, context. And I reported on this um, when this story, when I first um, caught wind of this, I was participating in a discussion um, on this on Facebook, and the loving family actually got on the status update and then had my account banned for 30 days for suggesting that, uh, I believe his name is Robert Loving, was a rapist. So this is just something that I have seen um, 
uh, developing, and I think that this movie is uh, is going to be pushed very, very hard in, in uh, non-white circles, and I think that um, many of us are going to be confused by this movie as evidenced by uh, the story that we heard in the clip. And uh, that's all I'll report for now. I'm going to read my line. Thank you so much. Wow, got his social media bad. That's, uh, that's rough. Uh, any other folks that we have not heard from? Hey, Gus, what was the age difference on 11s again? 17-11. Mildred, the black uh, non-white female, she was 11 when they first met, and then when they uh, got married, uh, she was 17, he was 23. That should be the whole focus of the movie. I'm sure it's glossed over totally. Uh, lady in uh, New York, did you have commentary? I did. Thank you, Gus. Um, it was about the um, loving case. I agree 100% with Mr. Still um, and his analysis of this movie coming out after the birth of the nation, and uh, I just, I completely agree with the statement. I um, wanted to know the source of the clip when the um, grandson, I believe, was stating that his grandmother was not um, black, was non-black. I, I do find it very important um, because um, even in social media, and things of that nature now, a lot of black males are saying, hey, you know, black woman and white man came together to change these laws. They were the first to do it, even though, um, you know, if people really look into it, they could see the inappropriateness of this with her um, being 11 when their love started to blossom or whatever. Um so um, I, I think it is very important that he's saying uh, my mother, my grandmother was not a black woman. She is Native American um, because it's pushed because you can't see that she is a non-black woman. She looks to me like a black woman. Um, and so it is pushed that, you know, black and white relationships, you know, need, uh, you need more of that, you know, that is the most correct man and woman or woman and male connection when it's a black and white person. So um, for me, I um, I do find it important. I'd love to have your source on that. And um, with the young man being punched in the stomach, you know, it's assault and it's child endangerment. You know, that's, I don't know if the child is under 16, but um, when someone assaults, minor under 16 it's a whole another issue when it comes to um child welfare endangerment and that needs to be pushed by that family um him assaulting that uh kid on the football field um and so that was it i will mute my line uh i posted the loving segment uh on my facebook page uh should be the top post on the page uh other folks we haven't heard from feel free Thank you, Gus. Yes, 
Thank you, Thank you. Uh, yes, greetings to guys, all the listeners and callers. Um, today I woke up, was harassed still by the, the union. I got a text message asking me who am I going to vote for. Um, so this is an ongoing process with the union um, trying to force me to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton. find that kind of odd. And um, I had a question. What exactly is a Native American or Indian? Because um, I've been told for um, a long time that uh, my dad's parents are um, quote-unquote Native American or Indian. Um, when my dad uh, gave a description of his fa- of his uh, mother, he said that she was um, dark-skinned. I guess you would say like uh, 50 Cent Curtis Jackson complexion. And his, his dad was... Uh, Light skin. Uh, I can't really explain who who um, that person would look like, but my dad looked. Um, he looks like he could be a quote unquote Hispanic person, and so does my sister. Um, but I, I always try to figure out like what exactly is a, a um, Native American or or Indian because to me that it doesn't make sense. So it could be no, another uh, racist tactic to separate people. Um, and then um, also I was thinking um, from the book study, someone had mentioned um, if all if like all the non-white people came together, then uh, we could actually change the um, excuse me the dynamic of our situation. And I was wondering, should we uh, like not separate ourselves from uh, other other non-white people like? Say, for instance, uh, Asians or uh, quote-unquote um, Hispanics. I know there's some people that that, um, that are in the New York area um, that are quote-unquote Hispanic, but they talk a lot about uh, African heritage. And, um, I believe they're a part of the RBG movement. And um, Yeah, I, I just, that question, um, does anyone know exactly what a Native American is or Indian? <laughs> no, you... Uh, the other male caller who spoke up simultaneously, uh, you were going to go, sir? Oh, yeah. Uh, can I bear it? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to everybody uh, listening on the call. Um, listening to the loving segment and, and talking about this, you know, this movie that's coming out, um, so interesting because uh, I was the one, that, uh, Gus, that, that sent you the, uh, the debate between Lopper Stoddard and Du Bois, and he uses... Stoddard uses amalgamation in it, and it just reminded me of that when when I heard it, and it, it, it was just very interesting. Um, also, too, I wanted to I wanted to give a background on how I got that uh, got that document because uh, I live in the Chicagoland area, and I got that from uh, Governor State University, uh, which is about uh, twenty miles from on south of Chicago, and when I went into the library. Um, I asked the librarian, this white guy, you know, about it, and he asked me, okay, wh- uh, wh- where did you get this uh, information from? I'm like, well, uh, I looked on WorldCat, and WorldCat said that you guys had it here. So then he asked me if I was a student here, and I was like, no, I was a former student. I used to take classes at, at Governor State University. 
so then he, I guess he went in the back and, you know, tried to look at something. But uh, so funny, he came back and was like, oh, okay, all right, I think we have this in our Schomburg collection. And so I'm like, oh, wow, a Schomburg collection. And then he told me, he said, you know, I've been working in this library for 15 years, and you're, the, you're probably one of the first people that asked anything about the Schomburg, uh, anything from the Schomburg collection. So I thought it was real interesting how, you know, you kind of looked at me real strange when I <laughs> asked for the document and the microfilm on it. So that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, the thing with the, the marijuana, I, you know, I, I, I got a lot of people here, uh, you know, in this area who just, you know, they're so giddy about having, you know, marijuana legalized. And you just don't know what the repercussions is. Uh, you know, to this legalization. I mean, you know, white supremacy is not going to give us anything for free. There's going to be a cost behind this. And, you know, once you played in the, in the video, I mean, in, in the audio, was just, you know, absolutely what, what's going to happen. I mean, we, we're, you know, we don't, we don't take care of our health, you know, first of all, you know, outside of just marijuana. You know, it's just like, you know, just eating, you know, right, you know, just uh, doing doing everything right, and then you know we're adding this, this this substance of marijuana, and you know this is medical studies showing how marijuana can get into your system, and not a good thing. You know, I mean, you talk about it every time when you know in your show about sobriety, and I just I I really, I really don't get it. So uh, that, I think that's all that I had. I'll. Uh, I'm, uh, thank you kindly for the uh, Lathrop Stoddard report. I have shared, so hopefully other people will be able to comment as we roll uh, with the book study session, but that was a fascinating read. Uh, I can relate to your library experience uh, where they look at you like, what is this nigger doing in here asking about this? I'm like, uh, I am going to write his or her name down immediately and keep tabs on this one coming in and ask, let me, in fact, I'm going to go ask right there. Do you see that, Nick? I have been through that many, many times. Uh, and that just for me. I, go ahead. Hey, hey Gus, I, I swear, I thought he was going to call uh, somebody state police on me when he went in the back. I was like, oh, I hope he's not calling the cops. <laughs> it can get real serious uh, when, as a black person, you just get serious. You don't have to. You know, talk about killing crackers or anything like that. Just serious and trying to do constructive things, getting information. Wow. That is a <laughs> system meltdown. Uh, you will see whites get very serious about things, uh, particularly when they start, wow, I've never even had anybody ask anything about this section of the library. I've been here almost 20 years. Astounding. Astounding. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from who had commentary? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, good evening, um, to this host, to all the callers, excuse me, callers and listeners. And just a reminder for those who are on the East Coast, don't forget it, 2 o'clock, he got to fix his plots and all that stuff back. And, you know, it rolls down with me, too. So just one reminder. But um, in terms of the movie, this loving uh, movie situation, I just find it so strange that in this case went into court in 67. I know the grandson is saying, I guess her birth certificate is saying one thing, but the case went to the Supreme Court arguing for white people's right to marry black people. 
there was never any talk about her being an Indian or a native or whatever. And now all of a sudden, the Kid Ruby getting ready to be premiered at the African American Museum in D.C. And now you've got family members interviewing says, well, she was an Indian. So I, I just, you know, and I, and I know how stuff goes. I know how uh, where we are, the stuff, everybody wants to be black. But nowadays, you know, we are out. Nobody wants to be black. But I, I just know that this case uh, was decided in 67, 1967, and there was never any talk. And it was about a white man and white people, because you don't remember, that's who's suing. And remember, because it was supposed to be illegal for white people, because you know they're so pure to marry anybody. And so that case was that he was a white man who wanted to marry a black person, which you know make that legal. So I just, just kind of find that rather strange. In terms of the... Um, marijuana thing. I, I just don't know what to say. I just don't see it voting well for us as a people. Because especially too, like the, the report where the woman talked about, uh, like she said, you drink alcohol and it goes away. But she said, the, you know, if you smoke marijuana, it gets down into the tissues and things. And today, you know, we're out here job hunting and what have you, you know, and the way things are going, I mean, I, well, whoever becomes president, you know, you can start getting stuff, you know, drug props, drug testing for trying to get food stamps, drug testing for trying to get welfare, drug testing, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we, you know, you always hear that stuff blowing in the wind, and if, you know, stuff can get down in your kitchen, see, that just doesn't bode well for us as a people. So, you know, I, that, that piece right there when she said that really stuck out of my mind. Um, there was some mention of babies with marijuana born in this system. I don't see the um, the outrage or the outcry as opposed to, remember, the so-called crack babies. And they kept oh, my God, we're going to have these crack babies. And then you come to find out, you know, later on, 20 years down the road, people studied it, and they were just like, there was really no crack baby epidemic. So I just noticed I'm not hearing um, any outrage or outcry. And I think we can say, all of us on the phone, can say that probably more people smoke marijuana, you know, and there probably are many babies being born with marijuana in their systems. We're just not hearing about it. Um, I think there was something about the news report, about um, stories that's being covered and stories that's not being covered. And um, I think you mentioned about, well, I, I think I saw on your page something about what cops killed by white men in like the last two days, like, like three kids, cops killed by white men in the last two days, and you don't hear anything on the media. And I know that one guy that uh, was at the football game endured his foolishness when they finally, some story I saw that when they talked about, he was like, oh, he's a loner. You know, you get these sob stories and these sad stories. So, you know, so, um, you know, there's just all these cahoots. And I think that the story about the, the people who were saying about media basically being white and how it's colored. And, you know, that's my word, how, how it's color is. And even if you get black journalists, you really want them to write as if they're white. So I, I just thought that was very interesting, considering that we know that, you know, stories about black people and, and they will make us look bad and all this will, you know, flood the airways. But, you know, I mean, the 70%, a statistic I heard that 70% of all Cops that are killed are killed by white men, and yet you don't hear a story on the news about that. So I just thought that was very interesting. Um, 
But I had just really wanted to comment on the lovely story. So thank you for taking my call. I'll meet myself. Other folks, anybody that we have not heard from, anybody who has not commented at all, have things they wanted to share? Grant, we got everybody. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, that segment where they were uh, in St. Louis, they were talking about changes in the two years since uh, Michael Brown was shot and killed. I found it uh, appalling um, just as I continued to listen. They were talking about different programs that they were setting up in the St. Louis and Ferguson area that were supposed to help out uh, black people in response to all the unrest uh, and they said they had programs that were going to show young black children resume, writing skills, and how to perform an interview. And I certainly do not begrudge, particularly any non-white person who wants to go out and share these skills with another non-white person. But the tackiness of it for me really stood out because that's like the exact, and I mean verbatim type thing that they did uh, in the 1960s when they had disturbances in Watts or Detroit or Newark or wherever else, you know things happen to flare up in response to white supremacy. It's, oh, well, we'll make a few job training programs and we'll have some sidewalk clearing programs uh, that really does not get to the root of the problem at all. And I mean, in my view, they do the most despicable, despicable thing. They will come and set up a building and bring in some white social workers. They might even bring in some black ones and say, okay, we're going to do drive training programs so you all can put down your crowbars from your looting and come in here and get jobs and stop being moochers and you get the job training and then there are no jobs now that you have been trained we're still not going to hire you uh that's just the same type of uh racist antics uh that they conduct and then monsanto being involved in some of the funding it was just uh it was represent reprehensible to hear in addition to uh st louis public radio did a report uh, like within the last three months, and they concluded that very little has changed uh, for the good, for the benefit of black people in the Ferguson area in the two years since Michael Brown's death. I will pause there. Any of the other folks that are with us, did you all have commentary you wanted to share? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay, thank you again. Uh, since you mentioned that, and I want to speak on it, it's, it's really... It is, like you said, it, 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 it is the same old stuff. And, and I can remember, like, I'm in Ohio, and I can remember when I was back in college, and this was in the, <laughs> the mid-70s. And one of my stores, one of my mind sisters, had gotten this job as a dispatcher with the city. And I was asked her about it. I said, well, how did you get that job? And so she was telling me about, you know, the government program, blah, 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 blah. They were writing articles in paper news. Excuse <laughs> Excuse me. The reason why I knew it was I saw her picture in the paper and her uniform and everything. So I was asking her about it the next time I saw her on campus. I mean, they did another job. They showed this one black guy. He was laying bricks and stuff. And needless to say, we're not going to even talk about the letters to the editor of people complaining about this. But the thing was, it was really sad. They trained her to be a dispatcher for the city. But when that money was gone, those jobs were gone. 
And so it is something, like you say, they will hire the social workers or whatever, the white folks. So like you say, think what time you would say a white welfare. You hire them to come in. They're the ones making these 30, maybe 40,000 a year, you know, uh, so-called training these people. But when it's over with, they still, you know, we, it would be us, unfortunately, black people. We, there's very few of us who can find jobs with the training that we have. It's a joke. It is. It, 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 it really is a joke. And it's, it's like you say, I, I'm talking 40 years ago, you know, back when, you know, when I was in college. Uh, you know, and here it is today, 40 years later, and they're still doing the same thing. So I, I just wanted to, to add that. And it is appalling. And it is, um, it's horrible. And, it, and, and it's sad because it's like, what? it's a new generation that's going to do the same thing. And that's what's so sad about it. I'll meet my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um... Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to chime in on the loving uh, situation as well. I think that I can still I agree with him completely. I think it was a very accurate um, understanding of the way the system works. I think it is going to reinforce the power dynamics that white men can choose whoever they want. They can choose from our adult women and from our children, and it's acceptable, and it's considered legal, and it's considered love. And it's disgusting and nauseating to even think or hear of that, but um, it's absolutely accurate, and I think that this is going to be propagated to promote just that. Um, also, uh, in reference to the loving story as well, um, when I went to, to Egypt in 2007, I actually went there with one of the, the loving descendants, um, and when we were talking, she had told me that they were the only family known by that name in the country, and she depicts herself as black. She understood herself as black. Um, again, my experience with her wasn't that great. She turned out to be very anti-black on the trip. But ultimately, um, her understanding of herself and her family's origins is that um, Mrs. Loving was actually a black female. And to answer uh, the question that the, the um, black male put up in regards to what is an American, um, well, the first people that white people encountered here and called niggers were the indigenous black people here. And there's a dictionary, you can look it up online, it's called the Noah's Webster Dictionary. And it's the oldest dictionary in the United States. It dates back to 1828. And if you look up the definition of what an American is, it says that the Americans were considered the aboriginal copper-colored people indigenous to the United States and that the name is now applied to European immigrants and their descendants. So they're basically saying that the people who, who they found here were copper-colored people. We know what co copper looks like, so they were black people, and that they basically stole the identity of the indigenous people, which is why now European Americans are looked at as the true Americans, and anyone who's non-white is not looked at as a true American. And then also, I found it interesting with the cannabis uh, clip as well, um, in regards to the fact that the brain, the human brain, actually makes its own cannabinoids. And uh, the production of cannabinoids in the brain assists the body in forgetting pain. So whenever you have a severe injury or a cut of some sort that is causing you pain, part of the diminishing, the, the pain-inhibiting process is due to the brain manufacturing its own cannabinoids. And studying cannabinoids, they are found, it's found that every living thing creates its own cannabinoids, whether it's a deer down to an ant. 
and it serves the same purpose, to help the body forget pain. That is why a lot of people who suffer from PTSD um, actually find that they get a lot of relief utilizing cannabis rather than utilizing the, um, the really strong drugs that uh, the white uh, killer medical system provides. So I just wanted to put that out there simply because they're not discussing that fact, and um, I find that to be just a very important aspect of understanding um, cannabis itself and the fact that basically every living organism produces its own cannabis or can- cannabinoids, which is one of the main ingredients in cannabis to help protect the mind and the body. Even when you go through like things like rape and other brutal things, that is one of the reasons that one of the uh, major part of the healing process for the brain is that it produces its own cannabinoids. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. A caller at seven two eight zero seven two eight zero. Did you have commentary? Yes, sir. Peace and blessings to you, and peace and blessings to the audience members who is listening. As someone who's an East Asian male, um, I gotta say this about white supremacy. White supremacy is the root of all evil. White supremacy has caused all the world issues, all the problems that we have today in human civilization. You know, and it's sad that white supremacy is still dominating us as we are the majority. We're not the minority, you know, non-white people in this world, we're actually the majority, you know, and it's sad that we're still brainwashed, we're still programmed, conditioned, whatever you want to call it, and he's still dividing and conquering us. And it's a, it's a damn shame that this is still happening in 2016. Now, let me also say this, though. As someone who, who is an East Asian male, I can honestly say my people are the biggest participants of white supremacy, you know. You've got the Koreans, for example, that have the, the, the nail, I'm sorry, the beauty supply places within the black communities. You've got the Vietnamese that own the nail shops. You've got the Chinese that own the laundry mats and the Chinese restaurants within the black communities. And they're just sucking up the money in, in the black community, you know. And it's said that the black community can't even, you know, have their own businesses within their own communities, you know. And, and Detroit is a perfect example of that. So I, I just wanted to give my two cents as someone who's a person of color, someone who came from Africa as an Asiatic black man. So uh, I just wanted to say that. Peace and blessings. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Um, other folks uh, who had commentary uh, that they wanted to share, uh, even if you have shared before, anything else you wanted to get in? Yeah, I want to say I don't blame the Asians for owning that stuff. Now, um, the fact that they've been able to come in and get those things is um, due to the system of racism, like honesty. Um, but um, I'm glad that he called in and um, shared. Thank you. Agreed. Agreed. Racist most to blame, as usual. Other folks, make sure we don't have anyone sliding in at the last minute uh, with commentary. Anything else, folks, want to make sure they touch on commentary about the election? Uh, Folks, anything that has stood out or uh, that you've noticed, even local elections, things that are happening in your area? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Yes. uh, This is Ken Steele. And I have noticed that in the last a uh, few days of this election, um, the racial showcasing on the part of the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign has uh, been elevated. Um, they are, I believe she had a concert with Jay-Z and Beyonce, 
recently. I believe that even um, LeBron James has uh, come out and endorsed Hillary Clinton. And uh, there was one more um, notable endorsement that I noticed. Oh, um, uh, Dave Chappelle recently came out uh, and explicitly um, uh, made remarks against uh, Hillary Clinton. And I, I just noticed that um, black celebrities are being put um, front and uh, are being put in positions where they are um, being broadcasted as, hey, authorities now on um, political matters. Uh, this comes on the heels, or this comes after uh, news reports have indicated that um, black people, or uh, what they're calling African Americans, um, are significantly um, uh, not being represented in early voting. The numbers of uh, black people are participating in early voting has reportedly um, decreased on this election cycle. So um, I, I think that that's something that um, we ought to be um, very, uh, pay a lot of attention to. And this is just something that I've noticed in the last few days of uh, this election cycle. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, um, he's definitely right. Dave Chappelle, um, I just actually just finished reading the article um, where Dave Chappelle actually discussed the skit that he did he uh, did for Saturday Night Live, which is going to appear the day after the election. It's their first show after the election. And um, he actually uh, was upset because he felt that the media misconstrued, I guess, the skit he did um, dealing with Donald Trump. But he said essentially that he... Um, just basically told the truth about both of them in regards to the negative aspects of what he felt both of them uh, were bringing to the election campaign, but yet uh, they made it clear through one of his representatives that he voted for Hillary Clinton. So even though he was bad-mouthing her like he was bad-mouthing Donald Trump, really telling the truth, but the idea was in the end he still ended up voting for her. And then also I saw a clip the other day. Um, I had the volume off because I was listening to a podcast but um, it was uh, Pharrell Williams. He also was out speaking on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Um, Dr. Dre, I saw a clip of him talking on behalf of Hillary Clinton. So, yes, the pandering and the, the racial showcasing is really, really uh, ratcheting up quite high. Um, I think she's, her campaign is probably has the most racial showcasing, I think, in history. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I saw a, 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 an article where she was discussing black people and their and us voting and the fact that she said black magic really does exist, speaking about black people's ability to help her get into office. And I'm just like, man, I know that the more confused people amongst us uh, black people in this country are going to just eat that up. And, I mean, just I think she just really took even her husband's ability to practice white validation to, like, the highest level and the most refined level I've ever seen um, in history at this point. So, yes, she's reached legend status with what she's trying to do to get into office. So I'm waiting to see what happens, and I just want to see um, how accurate Dr. Welsing's prediction is because there's, so, there's, there's a, a for, uh, something fermenting under the radar. Or I, I would say, let me change, excuse me, um, that's a metaphor. I would say uh, in a subtle manner, 
in which um, it might be possible that it looks like she's winning, and at the last minute they're gonna, they might end up having Trump win. So I'm just going to watch it. Um, I hope he. I hope. I hope um, he gets into office simply because I think it'll be the main catalyst to bring non-white people together to understand exactly what we're dealing with in this country. And I also wanted to say uh, thank you to the Asian male who did uh, speak up in reference to his uh, his views on racism and white supremacy. I think that's very important. I don't uh, get to hear uh, many Asian people discuss, East Asian people discuss, uh, how they feel about white supremacy and in that particular type of verbiage and especially making that connection between uh, uh, Africans and the founding of uh, Asian the Asian uh, societies in the Far East. So thanks again for that. I appreciate it, and I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is a caller from Florida. I was um, calling in real quick just to um, give my input on my observations that I've seen um, uh, here in Central Florida, um, for the most part, um, just in my neck of the woods, uh, a majority of uh, black people here um, are tending to uh, vote for Hillary, and um, just within my family and itself, uh, pretty much everybody's Hillary supporters, but they're reluctant, I guess. Um, for the most part, because I guess they recognize that both sides are, you know, corrupt. But, you know, I guess for um, obvious reasons, you know, people have bought into that concept of, you know, having her versus Trump is kind of like the lesser two evils. And, um, uh, I've also noticed since I've been here, um, just uh, a lot of the um, uh, ads that come on um, are, well, from what I've seen thus far, um, at least where I'm at, um, it's very anti-Hillary, and um, it's, I, I mean, just in town, um, I, I guess we're on the edge of where everybody else around us is just, it's, it's Trump or else. <laughs> but um, this seems like a, a, it, it's, it's very tense, even just going out and about, um, i say about 10 minutes away from a place called uh, the Villages, and, which is a predominantly white area. And, you know, just hearing discussions amongst um, a lot of um, veterans and snowbirds that uh, come in um, from up north, you know, they're just openly, you know, the racism is just openly kind of displayed. I mean, for the average person who doesn't know, they, they don't, they wouldn't see um, what I'm talking about. But as far as, you know, when um, they overhear them discuss politics. They're just more free about just talking about how they feel. And I think that's something that, you know, if Trump gets in office, at least like the other caller was saying, I think that would be the catalyst to force other um, non-white people 
to take a step back to, you know, really, really um, get a better grasp and understanding of uh, what it is that we're dealing with. And um, other than that, um, I'm doing okay with my surgery to some degree, um, but it's been a process. But um, uh, I have to be back in um, New Orleans to have uh, these pictures uh, and stuff taken out. Um, but, um, like I said, as far as, um, medically, everything has been going okay. I've been, uh, you know, trying to do my due diligence to make sure that I'm not, um, being impacted, um, by, um, uh, anything negative, um, racism-wise, um, while I'm going through this. from you, Princess. Hope you are uh, taking good care of yourself. I know folks were uh, thinking about you and sending well wishes uh, when they heard about your uh, surgeries uh, from last week, or pending, I guess, surgery that you had, and then pending surgery still to come. Uh, other folks uh, going to comment? Anyone been harassed about voting from family members or on the job or commentary about? Yes, ma'am. I have not been harassed, but I did want to share an interesting observation at the bank on Friday. A white male came to a teller, African-American male, um, and just started demanding that he he would vote. Well, first he asked him uh, if he was voting and who for, and so um, the gentleman said no. And he doesn't know what day it was. And immediately he told him that whatever happens, it's all his fault. There's no excuse why he wouldn't vote. And he just kept going on and on. So then finally he asked him why he wasn't voting. He said, I just turned 18 and I was too late to register. I think because of the um, gentleman's size that he assumed that he was, well, in his 20s or his 30s, but um, he was, you know, very young. So he said, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I can't do it yet because I wasn't old enough and I missed the deadline, so I don't know anything. He said, well, next time you better do it and you better write it down, mark it on your calendar. He said, yeah, I will do it. But he says, again, it's going to be your fault. And I'm like, why would he say that to him? Oh, again, it's going to be your fault, whatever happens. He told you he was 18, and last time I checked, you can't intimidate people, harass them about voting, so he's at his job working. Why are you doing this to him? I mean, he literally took 
an extra five to seven minutes to tell him about voting. And I'm in line for that amount of time because I had to handle some other things with my account. And usually people, you know, they get you in, get you out. And it was it was just very interesting to look on his face when he's like, okay, this guy just will not stop badgering me about voting. So um, that was something I wanted to share that I thought was interesting. Always be glad. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead, Thomas. Okay. Um. Yeah. Um. You know, I think that if um voting was going to be that constructive, it wouldn't wouldn't be allowed to do it. Um. So, it's just too easy to do. You know. Um. And I just don't agree that um we need to be running out and supporting these um the next administrative director of racism white supremacy that they're going to put in charge. However, I did see the Jay Z and Beyonce concert. Well, I didn't see it. I, I heard that they had one, and um, I heard that they didn't censor their song. So um, Trump today, he said that, could you imagine if I said the things that Jay-Z said? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, I could imagine Jay-Z, nigga, 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 all over his songs. And um, uh, I just thought that was very, just, to me, just very, very, I just can't believe they did that. You know, it's like. So you went and got Jay-Z or someone to perform at your, your, your concert and um, you didn't tell him to censor his, his, his words he says. Does he listen to the music? I mean, it just didn't seem fitting. And um, I'm glad that Trump spent it that way. I'm, I'm pro-Trump on this one. However, I'm anti-voting. But um, like Rod said, and um, I think like um, it's been said several times on the show that uh, we need a, a wake-up call. And I think that... Um, if we have Hillary Clinton, I'm saying Trump would be the wake-up call, but black people would be asleep for another four to eight years. Um, or that's a metaphor. I apologize, but black people will um, be very secure in their in their position for another four to eight years, and um, not really trying to to take on the system. Um, she's done a lot of racial showcase, and I mean, um, up to these emails, um, you know. Um, she either had Donna Brazil helping her get questions for the debate, and now she's fired. Um, I mean, she's she's the worst thing ever. I mean, I, I I would say she's ten to fifteen times more racist than Trump, even on his worst day. Like what she's done, the welfare reform or the, the crime bill, like that's that's her legacy. And I just don't see why black people run to her. And, and want to go vote for her. It just makes no This is the one election we need to sit back and take notes and just see how it plays out. Um, see how white people vote. Do they want Trump or do they want Hillary? Um, that would be very telling. Um, also, I wanted to say uh, there was a, another rapper, Lil Wayne, in the news again. And, then, you know, sometimes I, I listen to what people say and I wonder if they just do it because, you know, they don't want to lose to the fan base or whatever. But we did the Katrina book. Um, we, I mean, Gus, your, your 10-year anniversary of Katrina was on point. I mean, we covered every angle of just about what happened, and I'm sure we left out about, we didn't even get to half of it. I mean, it's so deep, so many layers of what's going on in um, New Orleans. There's no way this man grew, to, grew up there. I mean, just looking at their earlier videos and seeing how, how they were living, 
it's nowhere in the world that he doesn't recognize racism. So I just think that he's doing that and saying those things to um so he doesn't alienate his fan base because white people do support hip hop much more um with their finances than blacks do. And I'm my mind thinking. Can I be heard? Hello? Hello? We can hear you. Oh, can I be heard? Oh, okay. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I just also wanted to chime in with um, what I find very, very interesting about both candidates is that um, they both have a history. Uh, Donald Trump is said to have raped a 13-year-old child on Jeff Epstein, the convicted billionaire pedophile, uh, pedophile island. Um, he was said to have raped a 13-year-old there, and the 13-year-old said that she witnessed him rape a 12-year-old on the, at the same, at, you know, on that same island. Uh, both Bill and Hillary Clinton have been known to uh, have had sex with underage uh, females, um, and 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 with uh, Hillary Clinton males as well on Pedophile Island. And none of this is is uh, being you know plastered all over the news for everyone to see. It's in the news, but it's not getting anywhere near the attention of her emails or anywhere near the attention of Melania Trump and um, what she's saying or. Uh, Donald Trump and where they choose to focus on his uh, business dealings and things of that nature. So I just find that very telling as well. And I'm wondering if any of those uh, particular things are going to come out and become more widespread public knowledge than it actually is. But I mean, this is, this is, again, it goes back to, you know, even talking about the loving, like there's just, these people are just sick and you cannot really trust any of them at all because they're all racist white supremacists but then basically the things they do behind closed doors are just as diabolical as the things they do in the public sphere so it's a lot to really think about but i just wanted to throw that out there because i don't see mainstream media really talking about it even though that information and history is out there for people to to research and find out for themselves thank you hey can i be heard right quick yes sir we can hear you Okay, hey, listen, I just want to say this, right? Now, you know, dealing with this debate, it's, it's, it kind of makes me, uh, uh, whatever it is we're supposed to be, it makes me emotional, right? Because, you know, when you look at this debate, I mean, most people, they know Trump saying he want to put up a wall and do the immigration thing. And then you got Hillary Clinton, I don't even know what, she, what kind of program she's trying to run. But it's basically, it's, everything is negative. It's like, a, it's, it's, you know, two people talking bad about each other. Nobody talking about anything about fishing anything, right? So, you know, uh, with that, you know, but, you know, I want to say, man, see, I don't think that these white people is really codified. You see what I'm saying? I think that they have inherited a comfort from the ancestors, man, you know, and, they, and it's basically thriving off of us not, you know, snapping up out of it. But these people here, they walking around, they just, they just as zombie as we you know, and you can see it because you, I mean, when you look at these debates they're having and these speeches, and you got, it's like everybody just going crazy. Go by Hillary Clinton saying Donald Trump is racist and Donald Trump is this. And, you know what? What is you gonna do? What you bring? What? What is you talking about? And you know, uh, it, it, that's basically all I got to say, man. It's like I, I, I don't even see how people is even still to this day 
being involved in anything that these white folks is on TV talking about, we need to start supporting it. We need to start buying their clothes. Now, that's another thing that, you know, I don't know how these white people come out with these products and these clothes and these shoes and black people go get this stuff, man. And black people don't even got no, who, who, who got black clothes now? Nobody. Black people can't, but that's my point, man. These people is just as stupid weird. Now, the government, they running it off, you know, just us not, you know, being reactive to anything. But these people ain't got no cold, man. And I move my line. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, I got harassment from my own family about who I'm voting for. And I tell them I'm not voting for Donald Trump and I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. Well, you got to vote. I was like, well, I am voting. I'm not voting for Donald Trump and I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. And you know what? I, I hear a lot of people, uh, especially in the black community, say that they would rather prefer Donald Trump so they can, you know, uh, see what type of America it's going to be in the next four years. And maybe this will, you know, wake up, you know, black folks uh, to, to fight against, you know, white supremacy. But I, I'm, I'm the opposite. I want Hillary Clinton to win because this is what black folks want and this, this is what they're going to get. And I hope that they realize that when she gets in the office, it's going to be the same thing and probably even worse than what Donald Trump is going to give them. So what's going to happen, this is just me speculating, but, you know, I can, I can see a lot of the Trump supporters retaliating against, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in any, any way that they can uh, violently. And then next thing you know, uh, uh, martial laws called, and then we have more cops shooting black, you know, unarmed black men again, uh, but under the auspice of martial law. So, uh, me personally, I would prefer Hillary to win, just to just to let black folks know you're going to get what you deserve. So, that's just my comment, and I'll meet my line. Sounds a little anti-black, um, in my view. Um, Whenever I hear that phrase, black people are going to get what they deserve, it's never anything good that black people are, the proposal on the table about what black people are going to get. It's never anything good. It's always something uh, bad. Uh, and I would, I, would submit, I would submit also, I have seen a substantial number of black people say that they are not in support of Hillary Clinton, uh, excluding present company, but I have seen a substantial number of black people uh, including mainstream prominent black people, Dr. Cornell West and such, uh, who have said uh, in no ambiguous terms that they do not support Hillary Clinton. They do not want her to be uh, elected and have been steadfast in saying that for a long period of time. So it certainly is not all black people who want, deserve Hillary Clinton. Well, well, let me, let me just correct myself then. Uh, you know, I, you know, I just say that just to be facetious, you know, but the thing is, is that I live in Chicago. This is a heavily democratic city and almost every black person around here, almost every is, is, is a, is a staunch Hillary Clinton supporter. And it just like sickens me when I, you know, when I see this, I, I know what you're saying. There, there, there is a, there is a, a, a swell of, of, of people in the black community that, that don't support Hillary Clinton. 
but it ain't here in Chicago. I'll tell you that right now. So I just, you know, just to correct myself, I'm not trying to be anti-black or anything like that. You know, just, just basically being, you know, you know, just giving a description. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been using the, uh, <laughs> uh, what do you say? Um, um, I should have just been more straightforward, uh, with, with my comment, but yeah, I, I'm not, a, not I should have been I shouldn't have been using the metaphor or anything like that. So yeah, just not to confuse anybody. But yeah, that's you know that's all I want to say. I know Pam is in Chicago. She also does not support Hillary Clinton. I think Farrakhan also said he's not voting for her and um, told the Muslims not to vote for her. So um, that's the Chicago-based organization. Um, one thing I've observed, and I, I brought this up on the show, but as this thing is getting closer. Just looking at the local races, all the Republicans are being labeled as bigots, racist. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like all of them are being put in the Trump, the Trump basket. Um, and I just find that very odd because this is the first time in history I remember white people coming out, just out like calling other white people bigots and racist and, um, you know, other terms that, that allude to them being a racist. And um, it seems like um, Trump has allowed the whole Republican Party to get put in that one basket. And I just thought that to be interesting. There was. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, I was just going to say quickly, there was some of that whites uh, labeling other whites as racist during the 2012 presidential election. But it wasn't like lots of people labeling Mitt Romney. Uh, as racist. He was the Republican candidate back then, uh, but it would just be a person here, a person there. I remember Chris Matthews would do it a lot on MSNBC and a few other whites, but it's certain this is like a whole uh, different intensi- uh, intensification of whites and not just a random white person here or there, but the main candidate and other people that are running calling them racist uh, as well. That was it. Roz? Oh, thank you. I was going to say, um, yeah, Mitt Romney, too. He has his um, abducted uh, black person that he could showcase, too. So that I think that kind of um, uh, kind of uh, protected him. And I was going to say, I think what Democrats have, have done is really, really, really refined behind trying to make the Republicans the racist party and them to be the anti-racist party. And I have told everyone that in earshot to read Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy if they really want to understand the origins of the Democratic Party and how racist they really are and the fact that they are just uh, just a thousand times more refined at the way they practice white supremacy compared to the Republicans. But if you go back far enough in this country's history, the roles were completely reversed. And it was the Republicans that were the refined white supremacists and the Democrats were just volatile. They were terroristic. It was basically the Ku Klux Klan in politics and, and they would brutalize each other no no differently than they would brutalize black people. So um, I think that that was one of the most important books that we've read just in relation to politics and understanding uh, the history of politics in this country and how it functions. And I think if enough black people got their hands on that text and and others that, that basically speak to that true history, I think that the it's possible we'll see a shift in consciousness in regards to how black people collectively view the um, Democratic Party versus the Republican Party. And it's all a ruse anyway. I mean, we, the citizens do not vote. The 
president into office is the Electoral College. And the Electoral College, even though they can be voted based on their party affiliations, they can choose to vote for the opposite party. So it, it's, so, it's such a, 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 a ruse. And, and I think that just the greater United States public doesn't understand how politics really functions. And if they did, really, we none, no, no, none of us really have to step into the ballot booth at all. They're going to vote for who they want because the selection has already been made long before this event came into play. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Can I, can I, oh. uh, are there any folks that we haven't heard from at all? Can I be heard? Uh, yes. Uh, let's get the caller on the vote line first. Yeah, I was calling uh, uh Hey, even with uh, I'm all the way with Francis Francis Crest Wilson on the uh, election that uh, Trump is definitely going to win, but for him to win, black people need to understand that it's going to take almost every white vote, and that's like he's he's turned off, you know, the gays, the Muslims, blacks, Chinese, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans. It's going to take every white vote. That includes almost Chelsea Clinton, Bill Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton herself, I think they all going to vote for him. Like, the, all the white people, he's going to need them all. He's going to get them all. He's going to win. But it's not going to be, you know, a mix. It's going to be all white against everyone. And, you, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Hillary voted for him. Like, that, that's, they're going to need everyone, and they're going to get it. And I'll uh, mute my line. Appreciate that. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Uh, caller in uh, Alabama, did you have commentary? Um, yes, I, I wanted to make a couple um, statements. Um, it's not too much distortion in my line, is it? You're good. Okay. Um, well, yeah, um, the thing about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump winning, um, I don't seriously see Donald Trump winning the election. You know, just based on, I think that the whole plan from the get-go, you know, like I think um, a lot of people forget about voter fraud, you know, how they will rig elections. Even when Hillary Clinton was running against Bernie Sanders, they accused her camp of rigging elections somewhere on the East Coast. I think New York, I don't I'm not, I, I could be confused about which state. And it wouldn't even be the first time because doing Gore and Bush, you know, they threw all those votes away in Florida. One second. All right. I apologize about that. But, yeah, they threw all the votes away in Florida. But either way, either way, you know, if Hillary wins, if Donald Trump wins, I don't think we should get all um, too frantic about it. Because regardless of who wins, black people are going to continue to be victims of government-sanctioned genocide, regardless if it's the Democrats, regardless if it's the Republicans. Um, I think Malcolm X said it best, one of them play fox with you and one of them play wolf with you. You see what I'm saying? Good cop, bad cop. Good white person, bad white person. And that's my statement I wanted to make. A second thing I wanted to touch on what I was asking um, the other day, because y'all were speaking about Moors, and um, it made me think about Miley. And um, I never left this hemisphere before, and I'm not saying I'm about to do it soon, because I still have 
have things I have to do, you know, that's other things. But I'm I'm, I'm planning that in the, in the near future, hopefully, in God's willing, you know. And I would like to go to Miley because I would like to be around the Dogon. And I would like to actually learn from the Dogons themselves about their culture, their history, and their spirituality. But when I was looking in places to visit, they said it's not too safe for Americans. So I'm just wondering, is that just white supremacists trying to scare us out of going to Mali? Uh, uh, could it be true? Have any um, of the other people on the line, or you yourself, Gus, anybody um, ever been over there or know anybody that been over there by themselves or with just like a few folks? who could probably say if it is safe or not. And I'll mute my line and I'll continue to listen. I have not. I, uh, I remember that question. I know someone that's been over there, and um, it's not safe for white Americans. I mean, look what they did to the, that whole area. So when they say it's not safe for Americans, I wouldn't quite put ourselves in that, that boat. Um, we're we're um, Americans, but regardless of where we go in the world, we're niggers. And um, that's how they're going to teach you. You know, they're going to either show you love or not. But they, it's not going to, they know that if something happens to you, the United States isn't going to care. So they're not going to um, do anything. But just remember, that's a very heavy Islamic country. And um, just a few years ago, the United States um, paid their, their number one people, um, ISIS, to go over there and destroy a lot of artifacts in Timbuktu. And, um, yeah, so there, there's not a lot of love for white Americans there. But I don't think that's going to um, affect you. The person that I know who's going over there, he is a Muslim, but um, they, he was treated very well. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, um, I wanted to speak in reference to the um, black male's question about Mali. Um, I know people who have gone there, gone to that area um, just about every year on pilgrimages, uh, comedic pilgrimages. I was actually initiated by a priest from Burkina Faso, and they've traveled through Mali, Togo, um, and that region. For the most part, I think you would be safe, but there are areas that are very um, uh, heavily armed, and they're like bandits who are known to, to like stop busloads full of people and rob the whole bus. So there are possibilities of things like that, but I think it's um, something that's quite rare as far as black people from uh, America being targeted. It's more or less really uh, poor people, and then you have um, the, the Islamic extremists that might, you know, do things of that nature in certain parts. I know Togo is a very, very, can be very dangerous depending on where you're traveling through. But Mali, I think, is, is um, a place that you would be relatively safe just being a black person. Like um, Thomas in New York said, um, it was more or less uh, white people, definitely, <laughs> you're going to have a problem in that region. Um, white supremacy or no white supremacy, you, you you better be careful if you're white in those areas. But for black people from um, the United States, I don't think that would be a case. But there are, you know, specific areas that might be safety concerns. But um, I think that you would be able to, to still have a um, very positive trip and learn quite a bit while you're out there. And I wanted to say the Dogon are not just one ethnic group. They are a bunch of tribes all over West Africa. I know another um, black male who's a priest from the Garuni people in uh, Ghana, and they're also a subset of the Dogon people. The um, the uh, black male who initiated me from Burkina Faso, he's of the Gormans tribe, and they are also a subset of the Dogon people as well. So they're a very, very large ethnic group that migrated to that area from the Nile Valley a long time ago, and they maintained the oldest traditions that date back to the times of the Pharaohs and earlier. 
So if you were to do that, I think that would be a wonderful experience. And also Stevie Wonder has very deep connections to the Dogon people. He's traveled there before. Um, I know some people who actually uh, know the Dogon people that he made contact with. And um, his, his connections to that particular region of Africa run very deep. And, um, and they've discussed on a spiritual level, a lot of his musical prowess were like ancestral gifts to him. So it's a lot of stuff that I think you can learn there. And um, I think you should really attempt to make the trip if you can. Um, anybody, if you're going to go to Africa, I think it's a wonderful thing. You'll be able to learn quite a bit about your history and culture. And um, more so, depending on what region you go to, you can learn about the origins of Western religion. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Hey, um, I have a question to ask you for your, your line. Um, yeah. Say if I'm, like, the only person I know personally going, I, like, I probably got um, one other homeboy, my homeboy and his wife, they are um, thinking about going also. But between just the three of us, is it, like, any, is it like you can look up on the Internet? Is, is it, like, groups of African-Americans that go every year? I heard you say you got friends that go every year. Yeah, they make pilgrimages. It's initiatic pilgrimages. They usually go to um, uh, Burkina Faso, and they'll travel to different areas in that region. But I also know that Renoko Rashidi does visits to that area as well. He also does trips to Morocco, um, Nigeria. Oh. Um, he's done trips to um, Ethiopia, to Egypt. I went with him to Egypt in 2007, myself and my how much, family. How much would it cost for you to go? How, how much does it cost? Um, like just went, a rough estimate. When, well, when I went with my family, it was about 3500 per person. It was myself, my wife, and my son. West Africa, I okay. think, might be a little bit different. Um, I'll see if I can look, um, look up the information in regards to the trips that he has coming up for 2017 because I know that he's posted some already. And, um, and he also does trips to Central and South America as well. And that's um, very much because he was uh, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema's, uh closest student. So he's carried a lot of the information forward in regards to the African presence in America and um and that's why he has the trips to Central America as well and to, to Brazil and South America. But he travels all over the world and he takes uh black people in groups to different areas to basically uh to investigate the African presence all over the all over the planet, including the Far East. He has a wonderful books on the history of the African presence in Asia as well. So yes, I'll look into that for you. And if you want to send um, send me an email, you can, I guess you can forward it to Gus, and Gus will send it to me. I'll get up the information I can find, and I'll forward it to you. Okay, all right. I'll um, give Gus my email then. No problem. Thanks, I look forward thanks, to it, and I'll definitely forward it to you. You know, so I'll dig it up and I'll forward it to you. Okay. Okay. Appreciate. It. No problem. Peace and love. That will wrap us up uh, for today. Uh, again, we will be here, uh, at minimum, we'll be here on Wednesday. Uh, Pam, Trojan Horse Publications, uh, her website, racismws.com. Uh, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, the Interracial Con Game. She'll be here on Wednesday doing the post-election wrap. Uh, we'll see uh, how it works out. Regardless, I think I've stated pretty consistently that I think President-elect uh, will be the one triumphant uh, Tuesday evening, but regardless of how all of this uh, concludes, at the end of the day, the problem remains. Racist man, racist woman, racist child, regardless of how all of this works out, come Wednesday morning, uh, we have the same assignment. Replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, I don't think either of these candidates has that as their objective, so we still will have a lot of work to do, regardless of how all this is resolved. That's the most important thing, uh, I think, to keep in the forefront of our minds. Uh, the question about uh, what does it mean to be uh, Native American or Indian, 
whatever the most powerful racists say it means. I think they have demonstrated pretty consistently and for a long period of time, uh, they have the power to dictate whom is an Indian and whom is not and to make that stick, as they say, forgive the metaphor, but to make that apply where nobody can come behind them uh, and say, no, you're wrong, we're going to switch these ca- uh, classifications around. I haven't seen that at this point. Uh, and that even includes if they want to take somebody uh, who looks like Tom Cruise and say that this is a Native American because I said so, that'll just be what it is, and we'll give him his casino license or whatever else we want to do with him. Uh, that being said, if you have questions, uh, gripes, complaints, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com. Uh, again, we'll be here at minimum uh, on Wednesday. Might even be here before Wednesday. You can just check the Black Talk Radio Network page or the Facebook group uh, if you have questions. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning into the broadcast. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, stay safe. Uh, big election is coming out Tuesday. Whatever you're going to do, stay safe. If you're going to vote, great. If you're not, that's fine too. I hope you do not have any conflict with other non-white people, family, or coworkers. Otherwise, uh, for everything that's going down, I'm just glad. I, I'm sure there got to be a lot of people uh, that have my perspective. I will just be glad when all of this is over <laughs> on. Wednesday, and we can proceed back to what we would typically be doing on the plantation. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, If you are not going to do sobriety, at least be codified. Uh, That's a problem I've noted uh, consistently as well. uh, That if you decide, hey, you, whatever you want, cigarette, alcohol, whatever it is, uh, but not being codified about that so that it does not cause you unnecessary problems. That is a major concern for non-white people. Sobriety would be best, at minimum, be codified. In my view, a major part of our counter-racist code should include never being intoxicated uh, while we are in a motor vehicle. And that goes if we're going to be a driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian. You never know when today will be the day that you bump into Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any other race soldier, badge or no, whites are dangerous. I don't think us being intoxicated is going to help us solve any problems or neutralize an individual classified as white. I could be in error, but I think the evidence is on my side. That's it. We will go ahead and wrap things up. Thanks everyone uh, for tuning in and we will catch you within a few days. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Again, our thoughts, prayers, well wishes to Princess and her family. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.